Hey, kids, do you like wrestling? Well, we like wrestling, too. We are Shake Them Ropes here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Myself and Chris Novembrino kind of doing a lazy river of wrestling criticism, going through the news and whatever happened in stateside television wrestling. And also, you know what? Sometimes we just like to watch old stuff and talk about that, too. Love for you to give us a listen. If you haven't already, we are Shake Them Ropes here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. What do you guys want to talk about? You are listening to the flagship podcast with your hosts, Joe Lanza. Stephanie Smile is like a white woman in a Mexican restaurant. Please, she just told the waitress, gracias. <laughs> Hun, did you hear me? I got the corn tortillas. <laughs> right. <laughs> Rich Preach. Jesus Christ, log off and go to work. What are you doing? And we are live on the flagship podcast. I am Rich. He is Joe. Joe, what's happening? How are you? We are live. The Iron Sheik is not alive. The Iron Sheik is not alive. Uh, The gambler has died, but not the gambler, which has been that. that, So when, when I got the word that the gambler died and it was reported that it was, you know, WCW jobber, the gambler. Um, that, that passed away. <laughs> so I'm not kidding. I went, all right, two obit flagship, slap my hands together. And I watched like an hour of the gambler matches on uh, various monsoon classic YouTube pages bounce all over at, at any YouTube page. I could find that had a match of the gambler and, and he wrestled there for many years, many years. Let me say, I have a lot of the gambler facts uh, for you because I slapped my hands together. and I said, you know what? Joe's going to nail it on the iron Sheik. I've done a lot on the iron Sheik. It's the iron Sheik. That segment's not that hard to do, but the gambler who's going to be able to really break down the life and the career of the gambler better than we're going to do it. So I watched a ton of the gambler matches. I got the gambler fun facts. I got a, a, a huge, uh, just a, a collection of notes on the gambler. Uh, and then it was later reported that sorry, a, a, the gambler died, but not the gambler that you all know another wrestling, the gambler, but not the gambler that anybody knows. So, um, well prepared for when <laughs> the gambler dies. Um, hopefully not anytime soon, but, uh, uh, for now, uh, just going to be a one obit uh, flagship today. Cause I don't have too much to say about the other, the gambler that died. Well, who's the, who's the guy that died? I don't even, uh, I'm not even rusty stallings, rusty stallings, I believe is his name. Um, I don't, I and think he, he worked as fl- the gambler. He wor- his name was the gambler. Yeah. But I think he was, I want to say mostly Florida based. Um, no, no, nothing that like most people, I mean, It'd be a pretty ridiculous thing to do a, a whole Jeff Gann segment. <laughs> I mean, that that's already kind of ridiculous, even though that the gambler fucking rocks, by the way. Jeff Gann, the gambler, WCW jobber legend, the gambler like that guy rocks. That guy's awesome. We could do an entire segment on him and I'd be perfectly fine doing that. But yeah, this other the gambler, Rusty Stallings. I can't help you with Rusty Stallings. I don't know anything about Rusty Stallings. I don't think you know anything about Rusty Stallings. So I uh, will not be uh, doing an obit for for one Rusty Stallings. I, I apologize. I don't. I don't. I don't know who he is and how did who reported that this guy died? How did the confusion? I, I, I forget even... who started it. I want to say it was I want to say PW Insider started it. 
that that the gambler died. And I don't know if they just got word that, hey, the gambler died and they all as as I would assume too, if somebody said, hey, the gambler died as I did when somebody said, hey, the gambler died. I thought they were talking Jeff Gann. So I was like, holy crap. And apparently they thought so, too. Uh, And then it got around a little bit. And then I want to say last night somebody was like, hey, I forget who this was. I, I, I don't know exactly. But somebody said, hey, I got I just got off the phone with Jeff Gann. Uh, WCW is the gambler and he's not dead. And then this morning, uh, Jeff Gann's son tweeted out. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Started the rumor missing a word there of my dad. Jeff Gann parentheses. The gambler from WCW has passed. He is alive. I talked to him at 1015 Eastern time. He is alive. Not dead. Hashtag false. Hashtag rumor. Hashtag alive. Hashtag WCW the gambler. Hashtag pro wrestling. So there you go. Don't okay, need those hashtags, like- pal, but that's all right. Anyway, so. Um, it looks like this Rusty Stallings worked. Hold on. Are we going to do a Rusty Stallings segment? Is this happening? Mike Mooneyham tweeted, another sad day in the wrestling biz. The Iron Sheik dies on what would have been superstar Billy Graham's 80th birthday. And on a local note, we lost a good guy, Rusty Stallings, at the age of 59. Okay, so maybe Rusty, South Carolina based then. Rusty, who worked some years ago as the gambler, will be missed by many. And then Mike Mooneyham later, when someone pointed out that this was a different person than the WCW wrestler that we're all familiar with, Mooneyham tweeted, correct. Rusty used a similar gimmick, not the same gambler from WCW. So it was Mike Mooneyham. Now, he didn't do anything wrong. Right. He, he, he said the gambler tweet, died. Yeah. yeah. Which is not wrong, which is not incorrect. No, no, not even that. In his tweet, he says Rusty Stallings, who worked some years ago as the gambler, uh, okay. passed away. He didn't do anything wrong because Rusty Stallings, who worked some years ago as the gambler, <laughs> did really did away. die. Yeah. So <laughs> people just took that for the more famous version of the gambler which was the WCW wrestler. So maybe he could have figured, maybe it would have been a good idea to just note that it wasn't the more famous gambler at the time of his tweet. But I don't know. I don't think he did anything wrong. He put the the shoot name and it said, you know, so anyway, it looks like that's where it started. Do you think if you're not in this like super deep wrestling world, like we are that you would know, WCW is the gambler. You know what I mean? Because like we're using the term like the more famous the gambler. But like to the the common wrestling fan, most wrestling fans, do they know WCW's the gambler? Do they know Jeff Gann or Jeff Can? The, the, the- I think if you're a certain age, you're you remember the WCW gambler because he was a very memorable gimmick. How many other television jobbers had a gimmick? Yeah, right. So everyone remembers him because he had a gimmick and he would come out with the deck of cards and the poker chips in his hat. And he, <laughs> and he wrestled there for like the 10 camera. years. He was a job for like 10 years with the gimmick. Yeah, that too. And the so gimmick adapted too. You watch throughout the years and it's like he's a new gambler a lot of times. Like sometimes he's like an old Western gambler. Like he's an old like Wild West gambler. Then sometimes he's a little bit more of like an Atlantic City hustler. Like he's always gambling, always had the cards, always throwing the cards at the camera. But yeah, it, it's we're doing it. We're doing the obit for the guy who didn't die, unfortunately. But Yeah, but he was he he worked there for like a decade. Yeah. Yeah, until 1999, I believe, 
from 1990 sure, to 1999, I believe, was his run. I'm sure he worked small independence in Georgia, in and around Georgia at that time, too. But they used him as a television enhancement talent through a number of different eras and through a number of different bookers because he was reliable and a good worker. Why are we eulogizing? I just, guy I just said dead? we're doing it. They didn't die and we're doing it. But, but to answer your question, I think that's why anyone over 30 who look, it's not like WCW was some small promotion. If you're over 30 and you were following wrestling through your whole life, you probably remember the gambler, right? I mean, how long ago did WCW close? 90, 2001? 2001. So, I mean, third is is 30 too young? I think 30 is a good cutoff. He'd be 10 or something, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, you know what I mean? Like, I also think that you couldn't just be a Monday Nitro watcher. You had to be a weirdo that was watching pro and watching all the syndicated yeah. shows. And I think also if you're online, it might work a little bit better too because he's kind of taken on a life of his own as as this kind of hilarious WCW jobber so if you follow a monsoon classic if you follow these various wrestling a- a- accounts and there's a bunch there's like I, I follow like four different ones on Instagram that are just like jobber of the day and it's just like they, it's just a random WCW or, or WF jobber or whatever I wonder if you don't follow those if you might not know if you're just like a normal wrestling fan that watched Nitro watched Raw maybe you watch AEW and WWE today would you know the gambler if you weren't like addicted to Twitter or addicted to, to it online I, I don't know I, I, I don't know I think any big time wrestling fan I mean were you were people just watching Nitro? People didn't check out Saturday night or. Pro I mean, I did because I'm a dork, and that's why I'm doing this show with you. But I think several people just watched Nitro and, and maybe a little bit of Thunder and weren't waking up at you know 7 a.m. to watch you know WCW Worldwide or whatever like I was. So I, I don't know. I would say the Gambler is one of the more memorable jobbers of his era. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree. I mean, you know, he's he's as memorable as people like. Barry Horowitz and the Brooklyn Brawler would be to the previous era, like, like the late '80s or whatever. You know, because the Gambler was more the '90s. Um, you know, again because he had the great gimmick. So, and also he's not dead. Just to be clear. <laughs> right for he's, the record, uh, if you just jumped in, the w, WCW is the Gambler, not the Gambler that passed away. It was another the Gambler that passed away. So. I don't know anything about this rusty stall. No, I'm lo- I looked like, all day, man. I looked all day, man, and I got nothing. Like you said, if it's Mike Mooneyham, it means he probably was a Carolina indie wrestler. Right. Um, so 59 years old. So let's say, uh, what, 30 years ago, he would have been 29. 30 years ago would have been, what, 1993? Gosh. So, yeah, it was probably... <laughs> It's a sobering like, thought. <laughs> I don't like that at all. All right. So it is. If he was in his early twenties, he would have been around in the late eighties. So Mooneyham probably knows him from the dying days of the territories and all of those startups that that came around that time. You know uh, where uh, I know Nelson Royal had a Carolina startup and. Um, and there were a couple of others during that era. Maybe he was a guy who worked. So everyone tried to revive Mid-Atlantic for, for a while. There, yeah, right, in, right. In the early 90s in that area of the country. Um, so I don't know, but I, I'm just guessing. I, I don't know anything about this man who is dead. But we do now know that 
the more famous The Gambler is in fact alive. But you got a nice, nice little mini synopsis of his career. There you go. And yeah. when he and when he does die, <laughs> Trust me, Rich I'm ready. has it in the holster. He's <laughs> ready. ready. I am more than ready. Uh, I'm not wishing death on this man. Of course, I do not want him to pass away anytime soon. But but uh, if the unfortunate news does come down that WCW is the gambler, uh, uh, passes away, we are well prepared. Let me tell you, I am well prepared to discuss uh, uh, the the gambler. So uh, I know, like two hours ago, Chris Jericho tweeted like, "Ah, I just heard the news or whatever." And everyone was like, "Oh, Jack Chris!" <laughs> like yeah. twelve hours ago, we knew it wasn't him or whatever. So, uh, but anyway, so uh, that's going to well, continue Jericho, to happen over the next couple of days, probably. But uh, anyway, Jericho wrote about the gambler in his book and a and a match he had with him, and he he um the gist of it was again as we eulogize a man who's alive, <laughs> right. <laughs> The gist of it was Jericho was very nervous and, you know, and, and he got in there with the gambler and he let the gambler lead things and he just led him through a very basic, simple match. And it helped Jericho kind of get his mojo back when his confidence was low in WCW. So he has an affinity for the gambler. And listen, that's probably why a guy like that got so much work as an enhancement guy for so long, because he was a good hand who knew what he was doing. You know, and and a lot of times your job as an enhancement wrestler is to help younger wrestlers get over and look as good as possible and all those things. And, um, you know, at least from Jericho's account, he was very good at that. But once again, why are we doing this? <laughs> Let's move on. Right. The man is alive and well. <laughs> we Everybody threw a scare into the, into the guy's son who had to uh, call his dad. Hey, dad, are you dead? No. OK, thank you. <laughs> Love you. Bye. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Pretty brutal. I like how he said, just called him. He's fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a like, uh, call and say, uh, I don't know. Did my dad die? Let me find out. <laughs> I don't know. Let me call. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite the way to have your day go. Remember when WWF said that Corporal Kirshner died, but he didn't die? Like, it reminds me of that. Except... There was no like other Corporal Kirshner. They just thought mu- that Corporal Kirshner died for some reason, <laughs> and uh, they had to put out a correction and all that. And then Corporal Kirshner did die a couple years later. Yeah, and uh, so le- like like us, they were probably prepared. They probably had the the. I'm sure there, there's some guy's job at WWE.com to write all these guys like eulogies and stuff, right? I, I, and that's got to be a pretty tough job. I'm sure Dave is is somewhat prepared too, right? I, I think Dave Meltzer has said that he's a little, he's got little no, notes on, on just about everybody. Dave said the opposite. Someone, someone wants to ask Dave if he pre-writes or pre-plans any of his obituaries. And he says he doesn't do it because he thinks it's kind of morbid. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's, then so he does he, a lot of work then do those days, the, the, those weeks then when guys pass away, I'm, I'm shocked then good for him to he do says that. He's a little but. creeped out by it. Now we all know that, like news services and stuff, a lot of times they have those things already like on tape. Like it's already in the can. Yeah. Like with some older people. And that's how a lot of times when somebody famous dies and you're watching the news or whatever, and you're like, how do they have this whole reel put together when the guy died like an hour ago? Well, that's how they do that shit like preemptively, especially if somebody's ill, right? Every year, just like go that. in and update the the years, but be pretty much ready for you know XXXX, you know nineteen sixty one to insert year here, and then yeah, bullet, a couple of clips, point. yeah, a couple of bullet points and some clips of of whatever they did in their career. But uh, yeah, there you go. So WCW is the gambler, not dead. The gambler Rusty Stallings is dead, but we don't know anything about Rusty Stallings, so uh, we are not going to touch on him. But we are going to touch on the guy who did unfortunately pass away. 
uh, yesterday. We'll, we'll get into him in a, a, just a second here, the Iron Sheik. Uh, some other stuff that we're going to talk about on this week's flagship. Going to be another loaded week here. It's just the wrestling world, man. Never, ever stops. Uh, ticket sale updates for AEW. We got the AEW Collision debut in Chicago. We're going to look at what uh, what tickets have moved, how they've moved since the Punk announcement. Now we have the announcement of an actual match on that debut of uh, Collision. So we'll see how the numbers have moved there. Uh, and then look at some other update, uh, uh, upcoming AEW ticket sale uh, Um data as well. We got the AEW Dynamite, the Forbidden Door Go Home Show in Chicago. We have all the collision follow-ups in you know, Toronto and Hamilton and Regina and, and, and Calgary and Newark and, and stuff like that. Uh, also, quick check-in on All In uh, in Wembley, uh, as well as Forbidden Door uh, to see you know what, what, what AEW ticket sales are looking like. And, and you mentioned a little bit on the Thursday TV reviews, um, or the Thursday Dynamite review, I should say, that um, AEW is a very weird company right now in terms of uh, of ticket sales, so I, I want to kind of touch on that and uh, and dig into it a little bit. I mean, it's, some shows are just like going to be the most attended shows ever with the highest gates ever, and then they're like struggling to sell this show and this show and this show and stuff. So it's 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 very bizarre right now in in, in AEW. So we're gonna break that down a little bit and touch on some numbers there. Uh, we will review New Japan's Dominion in Osaka Joe Hall, Dominion six four in Osaka Joe Hall. I uh, had Sonata versus Yotsuji in the main event and a lot of other stuff up and down the card. In addition to that, we also got the G1 Climax lineup. We have the official lineup of the competitors uh, in this year's G1 Climax. We'll touch on those, kind of preview that a little bit as we uh, prepare for for blocks and schedules and all that sort of stuff coming up uh, in the next couple of days as well. I will preview the All Together show coming up on the 9th, coming up tomorrow from uh, New Japan, All Japan, and NOAA. Uh, it's a joint show, mostly tag matches in there, but there's some stuff to, uh, to touch on, some stuff that we can dig into. Uh, we also have uh, a big news out of Dragon. Dragon Gate, uh, the firing of SB Kento and Takuma Fujiwara that we'll touch on uh, with some additional notes from the Open the Voice Gate guys uh, on the Voice Wrestling Podcast Network today. A, a very extensive breakdown of this, but we have some other stuff uh, to get into that. Uh, and then finally, mercifully, the NWA Crockett Cup night one, night two. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I, I, uh, another NWA show that just, you know, if we don't cover it, nobody will. So we, we have to cover it. And uh, boy, there is a uh, plenty to cover from the NWA Crockett Cup. But Joe, let's start out with the unfortunate news that the Iron Sheik has passed away, he passed away yesterday. Uh, the actual age of the Iron Sheik still kind of up for debate all these years later. Uh, some people say it was, I think it was like June 19 or 49 or 1942, March 1942, 1944, 1945. It's kind of all over the board of, of, of exactly how old he was when he was born. We know he was at least 80. Uh, 81 is probably if you use the March 15th, 1942 uh, age. But regardless, early 80s uh, for the Iron Sheik, uh, no matter what, uh, June 7th, uh, the Iron Sheik passes away. One of the more you know popular and more I, I don't know. I, I don't know the correct words to kind of describe what you're, the Iron you're Sheik, looking for the word. You're looking for the word memorable. I guess memorable. Yeah. Pro, yeah. That's probably it. Like to, to some like a mom test guy. He is one of them that I think is is would probably do surprisingly well in that <clears throat> given that, you know, his actual wrestling career maybe isn't as popular as others or as, as prolific as others, but was able to kind of carve out a niche for himself and, and just be yeah one of the more popular you know, well-known wrestlers uh, of all time. The Iron Sheik passed away uh, yesterday. So uh, yeah, let's 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 take it away with the Iron Sheik. Anything that you wanted to start out with here? Yeah, well, he's one of the most memorable and colorful wrestling characters of all time uh, because of the era that he 
you know, he was he he was the number two heel for a time during the Hulkamania era, during the wrestling boom of the eighties. Um certainly behind Roddy Piper. And he's you know, he would he slipped down the card as the years moved along because what a lot of people may not realize is even by the time he beat Bob Backlund in 83, he was already over the age of 40, and it was on the downside physically. Very similar to how we talked about Bushwhacker Butch a few weeks ago and how he finally made it to the WWF and achieved his biggest fame when he was already well past his physical prime. That's the same idea here with the Iron Sheik. By 83, when he beat Backlund and was chosen as the transitional champion to get the title to Hulk Hogan, he was already past. He was already forty-one or forty-two years old at that point. If you're going by the 1942 birthday, a lot of people think he was born in the late 30s. So he could have even have been in his mid 40s by then. Um, and again, in an era where your fitness and athletes staying in their prime well into their early 50s was, we weren't even anywhere close to that era. Okay, so. He very much looked and worked like a guy who was in his early to mid-40s. He had already developed the giant belly and, and, and all of that. But, um, but regardless, he was there during that wrestling boom and was one of the more colorful characters with the mustache and doing the whole you know, Iranian gimmick at the height of the political tensions between the United States and Iran, which was perfect for the era and perfect as a foil for Hulk Hogan and you know after he lost the title to Hogan in January of 84 and then had the feud with Sergeant Slaughter and we'll get into all this in more yeah. detail I'm not blowing through it um they then put him in the tag team with Nikolai Volkov a you know communist from the Soviet Union and it was just a perfect marriage of you know the two countries that had all this political heat with the US and that was uh something that was easy to play off of and draw a lot of money out of. But they were, you know, it, it's, they were more cartoonish than they were more cartoon villains than anything else. You know, Iron Sheik with the mustache and the curled boots and the Hak Fui and Russia. Number one, Iran, number one USA. And then Hak Fu spitting all over the floor and Nikolai Volkov with the, the very Russian. subtle, the, the very subtle red sweater with USSR across the chest. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, the, really, yeah, really. You know. <laughs> so it's like, you know, they were... They were the Russian most, national was, anthem. Was a, I love it. it like, nobody yeah, actually knew it. It was just like, rah, yeah. rah, 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 rah. Like, is that actually the Russian national anthem? Nobody knows. Yeah, he you wasn't know. Russian. I mean, <laughs> right. he wasn't a... What? You know... Are you... Wait, what? And, <laughs> Are you kidding me? You know, so they were... It was the, the, presentation was cartoonish the presentation of everyone in that era of wwf was was cartoonish yeah, yeah. but and they were literally a cartoon because iron Sheik was one of the principals on hulk hogan's you know uh rock and wrestling saturday morning cartoon so it was the lead heel on that along with piper so um so because of all of that and because he was the one chosen for that little transition run because vince mcmahon figured he was the best choice because of the political tension with Iran and you're beating the all American Bob Backlund, whose whole gimmick was, he was like this all American boy. And then he's going to get beat by Hulk Hogan. Who's, you know, going to be your newest superstar. And his whole deal was going to be that he was an American hero who better 
to put in that role as the transitional champion than this evil Iranian, you know, fresh off of the the Iranian hostage crisis from a couple years earlier and uh, all of the heat that we still had with them politically. So it worked out good for him to be with the WWF at that time and place. And, you know, who knows what his career after that would have looked like if he wasn't chosen for that little one-month title run because that really... Uh, because he was able to call himself a former WWF world champion, you know, he, that got him so many jobs afterwards when that may not have been the case if they had chosen, you know, just name any other heel in the WWF in early 1984. They could have chosen this Samoan Afa. They could have chosen uh, David Schultz. They could have chosen uh, an aging Mr. Fuji. They could have chosen from a number of different heels in the in the territory at that time to hold the belt from a month. And then the Sheik's entire career changes. Who knows if he gets a chance to come back to WCW when George Scott is in power, right? Who knows if he gets to go down to Puerto Rico after he gets fired for getting pulled over with Hacksaw Duggan and Puerto Rico brings him down there to work a program with Carlos Colon. Who knows if he gets that opportunity if he's not a former WWF champion. Um, and you could go right down the line with every opportunity he got after that. Who knows if WWF keeps bringing him back. Yeah, they brought him back four time. or five times after, after the initial so, run, too. Yeah, so it was uh, a very good break for him to be to just happen to be a guy who was shoot from Iran. He was shoot Iranian. And to have been doing this Iron Sheik gimmick for a number of years during the political tensions, and then to be back in WWF at that time, I mean, it really became... And a guy who had been pushed. I mean, he had had title matches against Bob Backlund in his first run with the WWF, and, you know, so to to be an upper mid-card commodity on top of that, and um, he really did luck out from that standpoint. But, um, so yeah, I think... For all of those reasons, he would qualify as one of the more memorable and colorful characters, uh, certainly for a certain generation of wrestling fan. I mean, because if you're a little older than me and my age, this guy was your childhood. He was one of the guys that was your was your, your young childhood. You know, your, uh, your formative years as a wrestling fan, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, you know, this guy is, like I said, on the cartoon and one of the top heels in the company. And, you know, uh, just one of the top guys in the company during one of its during one of the boom periods. So um, I don't know. What what did you think of the Iron Sheik as an overview? Yeah. Yeah. So so today I, I went through or over the last couple of days, um, went through and watched as much non WWF Iron Sheik as I possibly could, because we, we all know. I mean, I, I think most people here and if you haven't. I, I think the the most obvious matches that you are going to want to watch if if you know you're trying to catch up a little bit and 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 we'll talk about Iron Sheik in terms of in ring and it, it was never really the in ring but I, but I do think he was better than a lot of people gave him credit for in a certain era once he got to WWF he just kind of he realized and and really he realized it by Mid Atlantic that. I don't really need to go out there and work really hard. I can just say I ran number one USA Hockfuey and 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 that's going to get me over and make me a ton of money. And he was smart to do that. He was smart to realize that I don't really have to go out there and do a whole lot uh, and do that. But you know, WWF stuff. You know, the ba- the Backlund match I think is actually pretty good. The ba- the one where he beats Backlund uh, to win the title. And, and I was able to read some quotes about Bob Backlund talking about working with the Iron Sheik and saying that. It was actually kind of fun to work with the Iron Sheik because he did have a very, very extensive 
amateur wrestling background. There's probably a lot of people that don't know it. They know him as the big bellied, you know, caricature. Like, like you said, he, he was just a, a cartoon villain is how a lot of people probably know him. But the guy was a very accomplished amateur wrestler, uh, competed for a spot on uh, Iran's uh, Summer Olympics teams in, in, in 1968 goes to the US after you know leaving Iran for a multitude of reasons mostly related to the the political culture there which is so funny about the fact that what he became when he came to America was like Iran's the best Iran number 1 and it's like you know his his you know his idol was, was an Iranian wrestler that died mysteriously and most people think that he his mysterious death was as a result of of you know the the, the Iranian government killing him because he was you know uh you know against them in a lot of ways so so he flees the country goes to America coaches like is an assistant coach on the U S Olympic team. Like he is a, a major part of the U S Olympic amateur wrestling team as an assistant coach and like a big deal for, for teams that, you know, did pretty good in 1970, 1970, uh, or the 1972 Olympic games in, in, in Munich. I know he, he was a, uh, you know, a, a part of that, but that's how he then becomes, you know, into the world of, of professional wrestling. And I try to watch as much as I could of his AWA days. Cause you know, Vern Gagne, very influential in terms of, you know, USA wrestling, melding professional wrestling with amateur wrestling or whatever. So Vern Gagne gives the guy a shot, has the guy wrestle. And I watched a lot of the early, early stuff. This is before he's the iron Sheik when he's just by his real name. And he's pretty good. Like he, he, he moves around quite well. He gets, you know, he, he's, he's got a lot of athleticism. He's obviously a very skilled amateur wrestler. It's pretty wild to watch him in those days. I mean, there's a match. I, I forget who he's against and, and I'll try to link it in the, in the show notes if I remember, but this match is like, you know, they, they talk about this young man, you know, <laughs> athletic, agile, endurance. And it's like, you would never think that the Iron Sheik would be referred to by any of those adjectives, but he was. And you know what I mean? Like, and, and that's that's how he was at that time. But like you like we we're kind of talking about very quickly. He realized, OK, I can be, you know, little amateur wrestler guy that, you know, but but I'm not going to make a ton of money there. What I'm going to be able to make money is having my bald head, having the, 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 the mustache, having the toe curled up boots that were loaded, coming out with the Iranian flag, wearing a turban, saying, you know, America sucks and spitting it. And that's when it really takes off. And that's when you can see the next generation of, of, of uh, the Iron Sheik. And you can see his work kind of regress from that standpoint where he doesn't really bust his ass. He doesn't really try that hard, but he's really good. I mean, like you can go back and I watch a lot of the mid Atlantic stuff uh, as well with him. And, and, you know, there was stuff with, um, uh, with blackjack and there was stuff that he was doing all across mid Atlantic and, and, and whatnot, but it's good. It's good. Like it's decent stuff. Like the in-ring work is, is, is not great. The in-ring work is pretty much what you got out of iron Sheik in the WF. If you watched him in those days, but you know, the character, you get it and you understand it and you see it. And the character that he did, you know, in later years as, as like you said, that more cartoon character has a little bit more of an edge to it in 1980 and 1981. Like you said, the Iranian crisis, it's a little more fresh in people's mind. There's a little bit more tension between the USA and, and, and Iran at that time. So when he comes out there and he's attacking guys and he's doing, he pretty much did the, the, the club thing. And, and if people that did not know, or they don't know back, they did it with Backlund as well. They did it with blackjack Mulligan. They did it a bunch of times is iron. Sheik would come out with those Persian clubs, like these big giant weights that he would swing over his head. And he, he was great at doing it. He would be able to do a hundred of them very easily and then he would stop and then he'd challenge, you know, the baby face or whatever. Oh, can, can you do the Persian clubs? Can you do a, a hundred of them or whatever? And then the baby face would, you know, look around the fans would go, yeah, 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 you can do it. You can do it. If he did it, you can do it. And then he'll grab them. This guy, he'll do 20 of them and the iron sheet hits him in the stomach with a club or beats him up or, or something like that. It was, it was the same gimmick and he was able to do it time and time again all over the place. But those had a little bit more tension to him. Those had a little bit more edge to him. 
as opposed to, like you said, the WF era where he just kind of became a cartoon character. He just kind of became part of the clown show and part of the circus. It was kind of fun to see him with some real heat and to see him come out and the fans really, really despise this guy. And those early WF runs and those early WF matches do sort of have a little bit of that, like the Backlund match. Like I said, that's a pretty good match because Backlund goes in there and they work. They, they're, they're, they're wrestling. They're going back and forth. They're doing ground stuff like it's kind of good. Like it, it, it's not a bad match. And then for people that do not know how it ends, of course, you know, Sheik puts him in the, the camel clutch and Backlund doesn't submit, but his manager, Arnold Scullin, throws in the white towel and, and that's it. And then Bob Backlund loses his title. The Iron Sheik is your champion, but it's not going to last very long because okay. that's yeah. that's a match that's a match that everyone listening to either should have watched or should go watch yeah go, I mean, go watch that it's, it's good match. it's actually pretty damn good and and it it you know and the idea of scotland throwing in the towel played into when bob Backlund returned in 93 claiming that he was the real world's champion because he was never defeated. right i never got beaten i never lost i never got defeated right and that was the the, the way to get out of beating Backlund to get the title on the iron Sheik was to, was to have them throw in the towel. And then, you know, a month later in MSG, that's when, you know, Hogan beats Sheik, which is a nothing match too. But you know, the thing about that match, the, the title change to Hogan is it was perfect for the story they were telling and what they were trying to do. I, I don't think the iron Sheik taking Hulk Hogan to the limit would have been smart in that scenario. You have Hogan come back. He's the biggest star in wrestling at that point. Okay. And you're trying to give him the rocket strap and just, you know, uh, he, he had been back with the company for like a month when they booked the match. He should have demolished the Iron Sheik in five minutes, you know? So I think they kind of get a bad rep for, um, for, for how lousy that match was. I think that that match was booked. I don't think it's that bad. I don't know. I watched it today. I don't think it was that bad. It's not great, but I don't know. I I didn't. it's what it should have been. It's exactly, it's exactly what it's. Yeah, what it Hulk Hogan been. is this gigantic megastar that has been in the WWE, that, that just came back to the WWF like a, what a month or so ago. It's obvious to everybody in the planet that this guy's the biggest star in wrestling, that he's going to be the biggest star in wrestling, and that he's going to win this was. title. Yeah, he and he already was. was yeah. So it was like, no, you don't need the Iron Sheik to have him on the ropes. And oh my God, is Hogan going to do it? No, the bell rings. There's a little back and forth. She gets, you know, a minute of 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 heat on Hogan. Then Hogan does a bunch of elbow drops, then the leg drop, and then he wins the title. It's like, yeah, no, nobody well, nobody she, needed a back and forth. She hits his gut wrench suplex, which he hit in every match, and it was a very nice looking gut. He 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 had a very nice gut wrench suplex coming from his amateur background. Then he had Hogan in like a uh, Boston Crab, and Hogan immediately escapes right he, he he does a push-up and, and tosses him off the, yes the famous commentary he did a push-up he, he powered right out of it then he does put him in the camel clutch but again it doesn't take hogan long to escape and then you know he hits the leg drop and and cradles him up for the pin and beats him in like five minutes which is exactly what that match should have been to make a statement and say this is the man now so no, it's not any kind of great match. It was exactly what it should have been. And the Backlund Iron Sheik matches, those guys obviously both had great amateur wrestling credentials, and they would wrestle each other, you know, and, and they would have decent little matches for the time. Iron Sheik didn't make the 68 Olympic team for Iran. He fled the country after that once the political stuff got too hot, and he was on the wrong side of that, so he got the fuck out of Dodge, which was funny because then his gimmick was that he was on – 
like the evil side yeah, of that. Right, like, right yeah, yeah. I mentioned was, that. It's, it's so that. funny that he fleed the so, country for, you know, political reasons. And then, you know, the character that he adopts is, yeah, I ran the best. I ran number one. <laughs> it's right. like the guy fleed the country because he was, you know, persecution of, of his idols and his family and all that sort of shit and then got out of there as quick as he could. So that's pretty so funny. In 72, so he finds it, the American wrestling camp and he wins the AAU title in his weight class and the 72 Olympics in Munich. He couldn't wrestle for the American team because he wasn't American. He would have been on that USA team, but he couldn't. He's not he's not American. But he made the trip with them as an assistant coach because he was hoping that the Iranian team would let him wrestle and skip the qualifiers or the trials just based on his credentials and the fact that he was an AAU champion and all that. But they didn't. So, you know, later in his career, you know, he would claim and promoters would claim that he was an Olympic medalist, an Olympic gold medalist, an Olympic wrestler. Depending what territory he was in, the story would be he was either <laughs> right. an Olympic wrestler <laughs> right. or a gold medalist, but he never actually wrestled in the Olympics. He was an Olympic caliber wrestler, though. So early in his career, obviously, especially in the in the early in the 70s, the early the mid to, to late 70s, being an Olympic caliber wrestler was going to get you booked everywhere. And he worked every territory. He, he did New Japan tours. He did All Japan tours. And, you know, he would always end up back in the AWA. And where he first did the Iron Sheik gimmick was in the mid-70s in the AWA when his career wasn't really going anywhere. And then uh, the Ganyas gave him the gimmick of the Iron Sheik. And then he, he that's when, like you said, he would adopt the more cartoonish aspects. And then, and then the political tensions between the U.S. and Iran heated up, and that was great for him. Oh, yeah, yeah. At that point, it puts a good time. Yeah, it puts a good time to become an Iranian, you know, a nationalist. Yeah. A good time to become an Iranian nationalist because, uh, yeah, I ended up working pretty good in the world of wrestling. Yes, and he ended up working as the Iron Sheik or in the WWF. He was uh, Hussein Arab, and you know all these different derivatives, but basically the same gimmick. And the fir- and and he really never got pushed as like the straight laced amateur wrestler. And he did get pushed in Portland, where he won the tag team titles. And then he made his way to Mid-Atlantic, which is really probably where most people, well, some older people remember his first push when he won the Mid-Atlantic title from Jim Brunzel. I believe Jim Brunzel. Say, yeah, yeah, I believe that's correct. Who, who he crossed paths with again, you know, about uh, six or seven years later. But so then it was the... You know, he got a big push in Mid-Atlantic as the Mid-Atlantic champion. And that was actually after his first run in 79. He had his first run with the WWF. That was the run where he had his first matches with Bob Backlund. So um, actually, he got pushed there before Mid-Atlantic because he did have championship matches against Backlund, including one in MSG, you know, where he won a battle royal earlier in the night to earn a title shot. And if I remember the story on that one, and this is Vince, this is Vincent K. McMahon. Vince Senior, yeah, Vince Senior. And the idea was he wanted to do this match between Hussein Arab and and Bob Backlund, but he was afraid. That was truly the height of the. That was that was 1979. That was Jimmy Carter, the the hostage crisis is in full force. So it was very scary times, and he didn't want to advertise the match because he thought maybe. Politically, it wouldn't be in good taste or people would riot or reject it. So what he did to get around it was he did a bat. The winner of the battle royal gets the title match and they had him win the battle royal. And then he faced Backlund later on that night. So that's how Vince McMahon 
senior got around that. Not really senior, but people get the idea. Right, right. That that's how they got around that. Um, but it drew seventeen thousand fans. It didn't draw a sellout because it was a gimmick where no one knew who the challenger was going to be because it was the battle royal. So, um, in those days, seventeen thousand in MSG wasn't a great number. <laughs> so, <coughs> so that's just you know it, it, that didn't really work so well. But he stuck around and he and he worked uh, a bunch of other MSG shows and he headlined against Backlund in some of a, in some of the other uh, cities in the territory. I don't think he ever worked Backlund again on that run um, for the title, but he did work Antonio Inoki in December of '79 in MSG with with what really was three matches. Now this was a sellout, twenty thousand two hundred fifty five fans. It was Inoki versus Hussein Arab. For the NWF title, it was Backlund defending against Bobby Duncan, and it was Harley Race against Dusty Rhodes for the NWA World Title. So, pick your match. I mean, all three of them were were drawing matches to some degree, but that that did sell. That was a sellout. So, uh, also on that card, interestingly enough, was a heel Hulk Hogan against Ted DiBiase, which is interesting because that's 1979. You know, some ten years later, they'd be feuding again. In the WWF with the roles reversed. DiBiase is the heel, obviously, and 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 Hogan as the babyface. But um that was the 79 run. Then he goes to Mid-Atlantic. I think I have the timeline right. And that's when he wins the Mid-Atlantic title. Um from because that was in 80. Yeah. So he wins the Mid-Atlantic title in 80 from um Jim Brunzel, who beat him for the Mid-Atlantic title, uh Steamboat. Steamboat beat him for the Mid-Atlantic title. And uh, so he had a good run there. And then, you know, he, he worked everywhere. He went to Mid-South. He went to Georgia. A little bit of Florida. Again, there's a lot. There's there's some. Yeah. You can find some stuff from Florida, too, uh, of uh, of him, you know, in in his, you know, early, early, you know, starting to kind of adopt the Iron Sheet gimmick, but then also a little bit before the Iron Sheet gimmick as well with some stuff in Florida, too. Yeah, always a derivative of it, you know, with one of the names, Hussein Arab or... Of course, Al Vaziri or or Iron Sheik or Iron Sheik Farouk or mm-hmm. you know all, you know depending on where he was working and how they wanted to present him. And then in '83, in late '83, uh, right around the time that they brought Hogan in and brought Orndorff in and all of those people, you know, he comes back to the WWF, and that's when he has those second wave series of matches against Backlund. You know, four years later, and. Um, you know, obviously, like we talked about, beat him. But he headlined uh, with Backlund in Philly. He headlined with him in uh, Mass Square Garden. He obviously, you know, the match where he beats Backlund in MSG drew the sellout, 22,092 fans. And then um, he did have some title defenses in between, uh, mostly television matches after that, just to, uh, and smaller house shows, just to, uh, you know, uh, get over as champion during that short interim to set up the Hulk Hogan match in on January 23rd, 1984, which is a date that, you know, any wrestling fan of a certain age has memorized. And again, 22,092 fans Hulk Hogan defeats the iron Sheik in five minutes and 40 seconds to win the title. And again, if you just want to look at that card, if you just pull up that card on, you know, cage match or your, your source of choice and say, well, if it wasn't going to be iron Sheik, you know, who could it have been? And you look at the heels at the time. I mean, 
like I said, you have like an aging Mr. Fuji. You have uh, Mass Superstar. You know, uh, could, could have been a possibility, I guess. Uh, you didn't. You wouldn't want it to be Orndorff because he was new to the territory, and McMahon didn't want to burn off an Orndorff Hogan match that quickly. Because right, right, right. I, I'd say the same yeah, about Schultz you, too. You probably don't want to do that with Schultz because I think they had higher hopes correct. for him too. Completely agree. You wouldn't want to do it with Schultz because again, he'd work a program with Hogan later. Morocco was Intercontinental Champion, so you he would have been a decent choice, but you weren't going to do it with your Intercontinental Champion. And then you got guys like the Wild Samoans or you know whoever else. So when you really look at it, uh, you know Slaughter was a heel at that time. But again, why would you do Slaughter Hogan in a in a? Why would you do Slaughter as a transition champion when you know if you want to do a Slaughter Hogan program, that could be a, a big program at some point down the line, you know? And then um, McMahon ended up turning Slaughter face anyway shortly thereafter. So, you know, in hindsight, even looking at it, you know, it was uh, uh, probably, you know, very clearly the, the right the right call to, to go with the Iron Sheik. So, um, you know, then he works underneath for a while until the feud with Sergeant Slaughter in the spring, which to me, and I've watched all of these matches and that uh, there's two matches in MSG that build to the famous boot camp match. There's the match on the April MSG show, which undoubtedly was the main event. Okay, Iron Sheik versus Sergeant Slaughter. Hogan's not on the card. The only other match you could argue would have been the match that went on last, Bob Backlund, Greg Valentine. But I feel like Slaughter was the number two, firmly the number two babyface by that point. And he's facing the former champion who just lost the title a couple months earlier. So to me, that was the drawing match. And that drew a sellout crowd, 22,091 fans, Mass Square Garden for Iron Sheik defeats Sergeant Slaughter by DQ. And I watched that match. I, I have it as a four-star match, wild brawl, um, just a great match. And it's easily accessible and everybody should find it. They come back the next month in May and do a double DQ, which is an absolute bloodbath. And you know it's going to be a bloodbath because Sergeant Slaughter comes to the ring wearing white. Mm -hmm. When did Sergeant Slaughter ever wear white? <laughs> right, not, not the fatigues you know, and anything. Yeah, he comes in a white shirt, yeah. I have that match at three and a half, and I've seen that match a bunch of times. And when you look at that card, again, sellout crowd, 22,092 fans. Now, Hogan is on that. Hogan is on that card. He's in the main event against David Schultz, like you just talked about. You're not going to burn off David Schultz as a transitional champ because Hogan's about to do his first house show program against David Schultz. So, but it's easily the number two match on the show, Slaughter and the Iron Sheik. Um, by this point, Paul Orndorff is simmering underneath. He's in an intercontinental title match against Tito Santana. Which he uh, which he wins by countout because remember Orndorf came in in late '83, but they didn't debut Orndorf on TV. They kept him off TV for a while because they wanted to get Hogan established as champion before they really started simmering uh, Orndorf underneath. It's interesting too because Piper worked this show as a wrestler. Remember they brought in Piper to manage Orndorf at first because Vince thought Piper was too small to be a wrestler, which is completely absurd. I mean in hindsight. But by now, Piper's in the ring. There, Orndorff is working higher on the card, challenging for the Intercontinental title. 
and Slaughter and the Iron Sheik are in the middle of this great feud. So they come back the next month in June for the blow-off, which is the boot camp match, which is the famous boot camp match. Listen, I would go as 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 high as four and three quarter stars. It's on really this good. By modern standards. <laughs> it's really good. I watched it just before Even we went live here. Yeah, it's really good. And it's the clear cut main event of the show. Hogan's not on the show. They didn't need him because they knew if Slaughter and the Sheik were going to do this boot camp match, that it was going to draw, and it did. Sell out crowd. Twenty two thousand ninety two fans. Madison Square Garden. Sergeant Slaughter, Iron Sheik, boot camp match. Dave Meltzer went four and a half. It's eight point two one stars on cage match. I would go somewhere. I found a tweet that I made a long time ago where I watched and rated all three matches through new eyes to see if they'd hold up. I went boot camp four and a half, maybe four and three quarters is what I wrote. I went the April match four stars and I wrote wild brawl. Great stuff. And uh, I know real detailed review, but we are dealing with, uh, uh, you know, uh, tweets with 120 characters, or whatever. And then third, I went with the May match. Three and a half stars, and that's where I noted that Slaughter wears all white, so you know he's going to bleed, and it was a little slower paced than the other two. The great thing about the May match is in the post-match promo, they do the double DQ, and Slaughter, he's covered in blood from head to toe. His white gear is soaked in blood, and he grabs the mic, and, and, and by the way, the crowds are molten for these matches. Like, you know, like to, the, to a degree that they're not I'm not trying to sensationalize the past, but you just watched the boot camp match. Okay. These crowds are a different kind of molten for all three of these matches, but especially this one and slaughters. there covered in blood. They do the double DQ and he grabs the, the mic in the post match. And he says in that Sergeant slaughter voice, I swear on my mother's grave. I'll never wrestle here again unless I get to get my hands on the iron Sheik. Yeah. And that crowd just explodes, and the roof blows off the building. And that was the sort of go-home promo for the boot camp match the next month, which, you know, then they do. And um, Slaughter wins, obviously, in one of the great matches, really in WWE history, but especially that era of WWF, one of the great matches, if not the greatest. Right there with Steamboat Savage, Right there with Slaughter Patterson and the, and the and the alley fight, whatever match you want to name from that era, that boot camp match is right there, and they did those boot camp matches in other cities too. These are just the famous MSG boot camp match and and the two matches that built to the boot camp match, but Slaughter and Sheik did these matches in all of the towns and built up eventually to the boot camp blow off in 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 each one of these towns and. I don't know if those boot camp matches were as good as the one in MSG, but I'm sure they weren't far off. One thing she could do, even at that advanced age and past his physical prime, was work these kind of brawls. Because I, I just watched the match he had with Carlos Colon that had to be in either 87 when he was fired or maybe 88. I, there was no exact date on it. It's on YouTube. Everyone can find right, it. Right, right. I think I watched the same one, too. Yeah, and they work a bloodbath. It's good. Yeah. I mean, for that style of match, it's really good. And And... And Carlos Colon isn't exactly a super worker. He's a guy that got by on charisma and doing bloodbaths and being a credible brawler and all those things. And Colon was past his prime by that point. And I, I was like, this is probably going to be bad, but it, I'm going to watch it because I've never seen it. And it wasn't that bad. So the one thing in that era that Sheik could do and where he definitely was not lazy, okay, were the bloody brawls. 
you know, when you look at these boot camp matches, and and, and I'll tell you, anyone who hasn't seen the boot camp match, I would recommend because they're all they're all easy to find through either the network or YouTube or or Daily Motion. Watch the three MSG matches in order. Watch the the, the April match, which is the DQ finish, the Wild Brawl, then the double DQ in May, which is 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 the least impressive match of the three, but still for the crowd heat and the setup of the boot camp match. And then the boot camp match in June, which they made evented with, which again, one of the best matches of that era of the company. So then uh, obviously you mentioned like he does the team with, with, with Volkov. Um, yeah. Then he kind of transitions. Yeah. It, it's, it's 85. And then, yeah, then we're full on Hogan era with the cartoonish stuff. Right. Right. And it's they, still, it's, it's memorable. Know. And that's probably, unfortunately the, the time when I think most people probably know of the iron chicken. And I say, unfortunately, just because, you know, it, it is like you said, he's over the top. He's cartoon characters. And then there's also the promos and, and, and that has kind of been, Maybe great. maybe his most important legacy is Iron Sheik promos. And I, I went through and I watched like an hour straight of them. The stuff with Mean Gene is just, I mean, it's fucking incredible. The stuff there's, there's outtakes you can find online. There's just so many promos. It's Sheik basically going out there and trying to make Mean Gene laugh and succeeding many times yeah. uh, over yeah. uh, in making him laugh, which is the most ridiculous things. And, and never breaks character, never laughs himself, never does, you know, until like there's some that are like, straight up outtakes and once they say all right cut then you know he kind of laughs or whatever and he's got a big chuckle but while he's in the character he's like a hundred percent you know on it and he's hundred percent but he's still also trying to make me and gene laugh the entire time and it's just yeah it's there's some special stuff out there there there, there was a few things that had me just howling laughing um where where he was just yeah there, there's one where he's uh, uh he's talking about it's a pretty famous one too i think it's the the cameraman zoom in one that, that i think a lot of people uh, uh talk about but in that promo before he's he's talking about oh i represent represent Iranians. I represent Jews. I represent intelligent Jews, not you. And he points at Mean Gene. <laughs> and Mean Gene goes, you know, he does the thing, you know, the thing where Mean Gene puts his finger over his mouth that he yeah, would do to try to not laugh. laugh but yeah. then he's, he, he, somebody says something off camera. Somebody does something off camera and he looks at the guy off camera and then he's just, he's lost it. He can't, and he's trying his hardest to say, you know, to stay on, but it's just like, and the way that Iron Sheik would just rail him off perfectly and the gene mean and all. I mean, that is the stuff that like became legendary is those promos in this era where he's just a, a total caricature. He's totally over the top. He's totally a cartoon. But it's incredible stuff. I mean, it's really, really, really good stuff. Uh, that uh, that 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 is pretty hilarious. But uh, yeah, the you know. promos you can burn two hours just watching oh, yeah. the, yeah, the yeah. local promos. Uh, the Hilla Hilla the Billy Jim. He called him Hilla the Billy Jim. <laughs> be like Hilla the Billy Jim. When I come to the capital of the California, which is the Sacramento, uh, I'm going to beat you so bad that you will be back with the pigs in the mud and picking the cotton. And Mean Gene's like picking the cotton. Like, what does that even mean? Like, what? Why would Hillbilly Jim, you know, like, <laughs> like he doesn't even, you know? So, and they're all like that, you know. And a lot of times he was, he was, he was trying to pop uh, Mean Gene or corpse him or whatever. But a lot of the times it's just he was such a character and and the way he spoke, like, you know, it wasn't intentional. And 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 Mean Gene would just lose it. So. A lot of, you know, there's the one where he's choking the turkey and they completely lose it and they have to reshoot it. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, it's like they're doing some turkey tournament on Thanksgiving or something and there's a turkey in the cage 
and he pulls the turkey out of the cage and then Bobby Heenan comes into the shot and it's just it this is chaos it's yeah. madness it's just he's he's th- those promos it's just uh it, it's all classic stuff and that was during the era where he was uh teaming with Volkov and they did win the tag team titles and held them for a while they beat um Windham and Rotunda and then they lost them back to Windham and Rotunda a few months later um I know I was reading something. I think, I think I was reading an article um, from The Ringer, and they said that they lost them to the British Bulldogs, which I, I don't know where they got that from. But um, but anyway, uh, you know, so that team. And, and then from there, you know, in I guess we should talk about in 87 where they have the match against she, – this is Sheik and Volkov now. And like I said, he's kind of – Drifting down the card after the slaughter feud, after they lose the tag team titles. Uh, at this point, Freddie Blassie's being phased out and they bring in Slick. And for a while, Slick and Freddie Blassie are co managing Sheik and Volkov. And that's just kind of to work Slick into things and to slowly work Blassie out, who was getting older and couldn't be on the road anymore. And then, uh, well, I guess before we talk about WrestleMania 3. When the Bulldogs do eventually win the titles from, they beat the Dream Team, right? Yes, I'm pretty sure. So so the the Bulldogs win the titles, and then Dynamite injures his back, and Vince had to get the titles off of them, and Vince wanted to put the titles on Sheik and Volkov, and... Dynamite refused to job. He hated Dynamite Kid. <laughs> if you if, did, you read his book. Yeah, if you oh, read yeah. his book. He spends half that book complaining about working with the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. He hated working with them, and he told Vince, "I won't do it. I'm not going to do it. I will not drop the titles to them. The only team I will drop the titles to are the Hart Foundation, because obviously those were his pals and his family members and everything else. So he didn't like working with a lot of the big stiffs that were working in WWF at the time." So Sheik and Volkov would have had a second tag team title reign, except that Dynamite Kid refused to do the job. So he they lost them to the Hart Foundation instead. And then uh, that would have been in 86. And then at WrestleMania 3 in 87 was another key match for them because they faced um, the Killer Bees. But the thing about the Killer Bee match at WrestleMania 3 is it was really just a way to introduce Hacksaw Jim Duggan to the company because they do a DQ finish where Hacksaw Duggan comes in and attacks Sheik and Volkov with the two by four. So Volkov and the Sheik win that by DQ. By this point, Slick is their full on manager. There's no more trace of Freddie Blassie. When Freddie Blassie was managing the Sheik and Sheik and Volkov, he would actually wear like the Iranian garb, (laughs) which is so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. But now it's just slick, and th- that match really, and that was like that was the buffer match before Hogan and Andre. It was Honky Tonk Man and Jake Roberts, which was a big match. Then they sent Sheik and Volkov out there to wrestle the Killer Bees, and it's a short match. Duggan runs in with the two by four. They had just brought Duggan in from Mid South, uh, where he was a big star, and they do the DQ finish, and that's how they transition the Sheik into his feud. That starts the, the, the feud between the, between Sheik and Jim Duggan. So a month later, that's when they get pulled over on the New Jersey Turnpike. 
was it the turnpike or the park or the or the parkway? I think it was New Jersey turnpike. Doesn't matter. They got pulled over in New Jersey, going from either the Meadowlands or MSG or one of those buildings to Asbury Park, or the other way around. Either way, they were in New Jersey, and um, they're drinking. They've got open containers. They've got they're smoking weed. It's coke. So they get pulled. <laughs> it's coke yeah, they get too. pulled over, of, and, then they, and then the cop finds vials of cocaine on the Iron Sheik, and they get arrested. They actually made the town, I think. I think they, they did. They made the town. They made the night. town. Of course they did. Yeah. You got to make the town. So, <laughs> yeah, despite getting arrested for a DUI, possession of marijuana, and possession of cocaine in 1987, you still got to make the town. You got to make the town. Yeah. But the bigger problem was that, <coughs> was that they were seen together and yeah. they were feuding. So, you know, <clears throat> they got arrested despite the fact that they were feuding and were opponents later that night and all that. So, Vince fired both of them quote-unquote fired he brought back duggan like that summer like duggan i don't even think duggan even worked anywhere else in the interim if he did i don't remember um now Sheik went away for a little longer i know that's probably when he went down to puerto rico to wrestle cologne in that match yeah i would think so because yeah he's back in wf in like february or march of 88 i I think that's when he was with cologne but I, i i don't know for sure i think he would even let me check cage match. He may have been back by the end of 87, to be honest. Yeah, they, they, didn't, they didn't keep him out very long. <laughs> he, he, he was gone longer than Duggan, though. Right. And right. it's probably because he got a lot of bookings. And the Cologne match was English language, and it had Hugo Savinovich and Bobby Jaggers, Hangman Bobby Jaggers, on commentary. So that had to be 87 or 88, just based on that. So that may have been during at some point when he was fired from WWF, but, and then he bounced around, you know, he popped up in Texas, like I said, Puerto Rico, a couple shots in the AWA where they tried to redo the slaughter thing, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think they did. Yeah. And, you know, it just wasn't, you know, 1988, 1989. <laughs> right. The, the Iranian, way. you know, that, that we're, we're a little past the peak of the Iranian versus USA thing. We're a little bit past the peak of Sergeant Slaughter. And we're 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 very much past, past the peak, the peak of, of, uh, of Iron Sheik yeah, at this point. Yeah. So we're just past the peak of everything. And and I don't know. If we're past anything... the peak of AWA, by the way, too. Yeah. They're clinging on to anything of relevancy to not die. And they would die very soon after. I don't know if I even blame. Vern for trying that feud, but it was going to be short-lived. And as soon as Vince called him back, Sheik was going to go back anyway. And he did go back full-time, like you said, in 1988. But the team with Volkov was done at that point. Volkov was teaming with Boris Zukov by then as the Bolsheviks. So Zukov effectively replaced the Iron Sheik. I mean, let's be honest. That's The Bolsheviks were a derivative of the Sheik and Volkov team. So um, anyway, Sheik comes back in 88, but that doesn't really last either. He doesn't get much of a push. He's physically shot. And that's when he ends up with uh, WCW in early 89. And this is a story we've told before, but no better time to tell it again than now. This is when George Scott, who had been working with, who was with the WWF in the earliest days of the Hulk Hogan push, 83-84 as McMahon's booker, um, left wrestling for a number of years. WCW brings him in because he had been a booker in mid-Atlantic area many, many years earlier as well. 
and he had a great reputation for being a good booker. They bring him back. He's been out of wrestling, so he doesn't know the scene. Like, he's looking around his locker room. You know, he's got, you know, he's looking at, like, young wrestlers like the Steiners, doesn't know who they are, just, he doesn't know what's going on. So one of his first moves is to hire the Iron Sheik because he remembered the Iron Sheik being a big star back when he was with the WWF. You know, the Slaughter feud and, you know, the Hogan thing and all that. So he hires the Iron Sheik, not understanding that the Iron Sheik, it's now 1989. He's like probably in his 50s at this point, based on whenever you think he might have been born. And he is just the absolute drizzling shit. <laughs> so bad. I mean, you can't be as bad as he was. And he wrestled, uh, you know, these TV matches and they quickly realized he sucked. And they, they tried they to do the promo stuff, too, with, like, Tony Schiavone, and it just didn't have the same effect that it did with me and Gene. It's not bad. Like, I watched the intro uh, 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 promo that he did with, with Tony Schiavone, and he goes, hello, American announcer and stuff. And it's like, it, it's okay. You know what I mean? It's not, but it's like, yeah, it, it feels like a bad retry. Like, it feels like they're out of ideas. And, hey, just do the thing you did in 1980 seven do it again and it's like all right it's 1990 like we're, we got to move on here we got to we got to move things up a little bit or it's 1989 at this point we got to move things up so it, it's it's disaster. the in-ring is awful and and the promos they're, they're fine they're okay but it's it's clear that this is not going to work and this is well 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 past his prime yeah and they think he's going to feud with like ricky steamboat you know uh over you know because this is 89 this is in the middle of like the flare steamboat stuff. <laughs> right. the, ring, the, the in ring is so much better, especially in this in that company at that time. It, it, it's yeah, he, he wrong guy, wrong place. So they have him. They, they, they want to put him in programs with top guys like Ricky Steamboat and Sting, not realizing that he's a shell of his former self. He has massive drug issues. That's the other thing. Uh, you know, I know we made light of him getting pulled over with Duggan with the cocaine and everything, but. At this point in his life, he's just has massive drug issues that would plague him for many years. His wife would leave him at at, at, a, at a point, and they would reconcile years later. Um, so they quickly—I don't even think they ever did a high-profile steamboat match. They did do the Sting match at Wrestle War, which is like a two-minute match. And honestly, with the state that Sheik was in, and and you know he had Rip Morgan as his flag bearer, because Rip Morgan had been the flag bearer for the Sheep Herders and. You know, he was a guy who they would always use as a second. So they put him with Sheik because the Sheep Herders had left, you know, a couple months earlier or a year earlier to jump to WWF. So Rip Morgan was coming to the ring. And really, that was he would take a lot of Sheik's bumps and things like that, you know, because they realized that Sheik was shot. But um, that's probably his most high pro- profile match of the run was the loss to Sting at WrestleWar, you know, the Music City Showdown show, which is. Essentially, I mean, but again, he gets that gut wrench suplex in. No, he you does. That, always, like, always has that. Yeah, he's always got that. Always gets that beautiful gut wrench suplex in. And then, um, so this is the famous story that we always talk about where they've gotten everything they can get out of him. They realize he sucks. And, you know, so they have, have him put over Sting or whatever. Jim Ross does his best to put the match over and put over the idea that Sting, who they're trying to push as the next big thing, beat a former world champion. You know what I mean? So they try to get as much out of that as they can. They even had Sheik tell the ring announcer to announce him as a former world champion, like to to, to play all that up and everything. So <coughs> they send him home because he sucks. Okay, here's the problem. WCW. <coughs> they gave him a one year contract for like a hundred or one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or something like that. 
which was massive money for the time. And it's actually still pretty good money today. I was going to say, if somebody paid me $150,000 today, I'd be pretty happy with that. Yeah. And the one-year contract had a rollover for a second year with, like, essentially a company option. Well, they send him home. George Booker, George Scott gets fired. And Ole Anderson takes over as the Booker. There was a probably, and with probably many people in between, I think there was a committee at some point in there. Um, I, I could give you the timeline of WCW Bookers, but that's really not pertinent to this. The point is, Scott was out. Ole Anderson was in. But everybody forgot that the Iron Sheik was under contract and that rollover date was coming up. So the date passes. They don't fire him. They're on the hook for another year of this guy because no one thought to fire him before the end of his first year. So Ole Anderson figures, all right, well, we're paying the guy anyway, and he has a name. So they did try to bring him back (laughs) in 1990. And again, they tried to put him on TV. He was terrible. He has that match against. He's worse. (laughs) He's worse now. And um, again, they just yank him off TV and they basically just use him on house shows from that point forward to put people over, you know, where he wrestles, you know, Terry Taylor and whoever the fuck. I know at the end of the run, he had a long house show feud with the junkyard dog. I can't and even imagine. I can only imagine. <laughs> God. Can you 1991 imagine how- JYD versus Iron Sheik. Ugh. Ugh. I can't even imagine how putrid those matches must be. I wonder if there's any on tape. Hopefully not. Send out the monsoon <laughs> classic signal and uh, and find out because that's got they, those have to be some of the worst matches you'll ever see. But um, so finally his contract's up. They're off the hook. And at this time, McMahon is doing the Iraqi sympathizer thing with Sergeant Slaughter and Colonel Mustafa. Uh, well, actually, Sheik becomes Colonel Mustafa. Yeah, she, she becomes Slaughter. Colonel Mustafa, yeah. Yeah, it's with Slaughter and General Adnan. And, you know, Adnan Al-KC, who actually was an Iraqi, the only one of the three who was an Iraqi. <laughs> and as legend has it, knew Saddam Hussein as, as a young man. Um, so they make Iron Sheik Colonel Mustafa. And the absurdity of that is now, well, number one, now he's an Iraqi. Okay. And the Iranians and the Iraqis don't really even like each other. But ah, we're, we're, we're dumb Americans in 1991. We don't know the difference. Who cares? Yeah, that set that aside. <laughs> right. The most ridiculous thing is he still has the same trademark mustache, <laughs> the same <laughs> everything's head. the same, same gear. He looks exactly the same, except he's wearing like the coveralls, like the Iraqi desert fucking fatigues or whatever. Yeah. And they're pretending this isn't the same man like they're. <laughs> They're trying to tell you this is a different man when it's plain as day that this is the Iron Sheik, one of the most famous wrestlers in the world. Like, this isn't some obscure wrestler that you're bringing back from seven years earlier or whatever it was. It's the fucking Iron Sheik. And he looks exactly the same as he did before. And they're telling you this is a new man, Colonel Mustafa, who Adnan is bringing in from Iraq. To uh to back up Sergeant Slaughter. So utterly ridiculous. He comes in, he's basically Slaughter's pin eater, right? And he's as bad as ever and getting worse. And they keep him around 
through the end of that program and actually he ends up <laughs> he, lasts, with he lasts longer it's so weird it, it, if you ever want to it's like late night or like mid 1992 Colonel Mustafa is still wrestling as Colonel Mustafa even though the slaughters thing is done and it's like well no just it's over man let it go like let this guy go yeah. there's no need to have this guy you know face Reno Riggins on superstars or whatever but there he is Colonel Mustafa it's like what are we doing stop stop please it, it's ridiculous yeah he loses the feud to slaughter obviously I think they lost what at the 91 91- I think it was the 91 Survivor Series where they're on opposite sides and the Slaughter team just wins. Yeah, yeah. Without anyone getting eliminated. Isn't that the deal? Uh, I believe it's, so. Um, yeah, yeah. It's Slaughter, Duggan. Um, You're good at Terry your Survivor Series teams. Can you do you want me to, here? I'll look it up to make sure. I'll look it up and confirm. Okay, you ready? Yeah. It's Slaughter, yep. Duggan, yep. Kerry Von Erich, yep. and Tito Santana. Yes. And the other team, I know. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to be able to get times. this team, but go no, ahead. I think I think I could do okay. I know okay. it's Colonel. I know it's Colonel Mustafa. Yeah, that's an easy one. Skinner, hundred percent. Yes. The Berserker. Yeah. And who would have been a shitbag prelim <laughs> heel at that time? We'll be here. I, we'll be here all day. Who is it? Uh, the Mighty Hercules. Hercules. Okay. I think Hercules may have replaced like Boris Zukov or something. I, I don't know if Hercules was originally meant to be on the team. Um, or maybe Berserker replaced Bor. I, I, I feel like Boris Zukov was supposed to be on that. <laughs> I team. don't know. Yeah, I, I don't remember. Um, I wonder if Wikipedia would have that Survivor Series. What year is that? Uh, 91. No, I'm looking right now. They don't say anything about it. So I, oh, they usually note if someone was replaced. Yeah, I, I, I can't find that. So maybe you oh, made it up. Scott Casey replaced B. Brian Blair. Of course, was I already remember replacing, that. Yeah. Like he was a replacement of a replacement. Yeah. One year. Um, anyway, so that feud was over and they fucking because then Slaughter, you know, he beat. Mustafa and Adnan around the loop, right? And then, but it was done on TV. And then you're right. They kept him around inexplicably. They kept Sheik around as Colonel Mustafa for a lot, like like six months after the feud ended, which um, there was really no need for that. And then that's really, that's the end of his major league career as a wrestler. Now he would come back as a manager to manage the Sultan um, him and Backlund, come. him and Backlund together managing the soul. They tried everything with the soul, man. <laughs> they brought Backlund yeah. and the Iron Sheik Bat together to manage this guy, and yeah, it didn't uh, it didn't quite work for the Sultan. Yeah, and he he, he won the gimmick battle royal at WrestleMania because he couldn't take the bump <laughs> over the top. Take a bump, yeah. So, so they figured he, right, well, win, he has to win. Had to win by default with one of the all-time calls ever by Bobby Heenan that says, you know, by the time Iron Sheik gets to the ring, it's going to be WrestleMania 38. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the guys are laughing at him because <laughs> you know they, yeah. they go to the top of the ramp, they go the Iron Sheik, and, they go, ah! and then they announce like you know the goon, and the goon like passes him. And Iron Sheik's like the last guy to get in the ring, and everybody they introduced afterwards like passes Iron Sheik on the ramp because he's just taking forever to get there. It's so good. Yeah, he, yeah, and and then he, he can't take the bump, so he has to win. <laughs> right. But then they had Slaughter come in and put. Yeah, him in, like, get the, the heat. Got to get the heat. Got to get the heat back. Yeah, got to get the heat yeah. back. So yeah, Slaughter knocks him out and puts him in the Cobra Clutch. So, and then he became an internet meme. Yep, you know, and 
went on the Howard Stern show and his daughter gets murdered. And <clears throat> I didn't know this story until today when I read it, but he went to the courtroom with the intent of killing the man who murdered his daughter. And he hit a razor blade in his mouth and was going to try to cut the guy's throat in the courtroom. And his family talked him out of it, which is some dark shit. Yeah. But um, his family basically was like, well, look, she's still going to be dead. And now you're going to be in jail. Right. This isn't going to help so, anything. Nothing is solved by doing this. Right. So that guy ended up going to prison. And I think he died uh, not that long after the guy who killed his, his daughter. But um. Yeah, and then, you know, he, he did the <coughs> whatever he could to make money. He did the shoot interview circuit, you know, all the, of the, in the in the peak of the shoot interview era. He would do the absolutely ridiculous and outrageous shoot interviews with New Jack and Honky Tonk Man and that whole crew where, um, you know, they would just have to make up stories and just be outrageous and silly. And, you know, he had the, uh, you know, the Twitter account that obviously other people were running and but you say obviously Stern show and, you say obviously but i feel like every time it's brought up people go wait really and like i don't know how people still thought that that was the iron sheik running that account i'll give those guys credit i'll get the team that ran that account ran it perfectly it sounded like the iron sheik it made sense that the iron sheik would tweet these random things out all the time it was very clever it was good it was memeable they did a great job with it. it they, they did such a good job that 20 years later, <laughs> 10 years later, I should say, every time people still think that it actually was the Iron Sheik tweeting it. So so credit to them for nailing it. But yeah, it was not the Iron Sheik tweeting Hulk Hogan, suck my dick or whatever. That wasn't, uh, believe it or not, actually the Iron Sheik uh, tweeting that. That was, uh, in fact, a, a team that was was doing that for him. So how to break your back and fuck you in the ass and all this other right, shit. Right. Like it's, and people uh, bought it all know. the time. Every time. I'm sure somebody listening to this right now is learning that he didn't run that a Twitter account for the first time in their life. I po- I'm positive of it because it was all that was like a constant thing on Twitter. People were like, wait, really? What? It's like, what? how do you not know this? Like the Iron Sheik isn't getting on his phone. And, and, but you know what? Credit to them. They did a very good job of representing Iron Sheik with that account. It made sense. And speaking in his and voice. Speaking like, in his voice so that even if you didn't it didn't matter. You know, you could suspend your disbelief and just say, ah, the iron Sheik." Whereas like, you know, we, we, and we talked about this one at the time, like the buff Bagwell account, you remember the, the ridiculous yeah. story of like, Hey guys, who loves dragon ball Z? And it's like, okay, all right, <laughs> we got this like happy pride month from buff daddy. And it's like, okay, this isn't buff Bagwell, but you know, like we all know the same buff Bagwell and people were like, no, no, it's buff. He could be nice. Like buff could be, you know, change people can change i'm like all right all right if you believe that and then of course it came out that yeah this was buff bagwell's to count it all and and, and whatnot so uh but the iron sheik i one, learned i learned what bussy was today love right. is love uh, guys people yeah, bought sure. that yeah, people buff bought bagwell. that yeah marcus but, alexander uh, bagwell being like hey what's your guys favorite episode of dragon ball z mine is you know, season three episode two and it's like come on <laughs> yeah stop or, buying this or, yeah as if it's the Iron Sheik tweeting, fuck the Rick DeSantis. Like he would really like tweet something. Right, like right, that, right, know? right. But yeah, no, th- those um, guys did a good job of, of um, and they did the documentary too. I think they had a, a hand in that. Uh, I want to say 2018. I forget when that documentary came out about the Iron Sheik that that was, um, you know, but there's also this weird like I, I have a I'm conflicted about the last half of Iron Sheik's, you know, 
career, not the last half, but like whatever, the last 20 years or whatever, where he, he's became a meme, he's become a meme and people kind of laugh about it as well. But he also still had like drug issues and stuff. You know what I mean? Like it kind of felt like people were enabling him in a way because it was like, I, I think, I, I don't know exactly when he stopped. I want to say in the mid 2010s, he stopped doing drugs or at least stopped doing cocaine or whatever, which is probably, but like it did feel like a long time. Like you said, during that shoot interview circuit and during the early or like people just got a mic in front of him. It was on Jerry Springer and he was on Howard Stern. He was, and people just realized you can put a mic in front of this guy and he's going to say silly shit and we can all laugh about it. But he was also like very addicted to drugs at that time too. So it's like, a, you know what I mean? Like, but it, everybody just kind of thought it was hilarious and fun and, and, and all that. So I, I don't know. It, it's, but I guess in the last half of the, you know, the last couple of years, he, he did get things a little bit under control for uh for his life but uh yeah, i don't know it, it, it's i'm conflicted on it. it it was funny but it was also like yeah you guys are just kind of taking advantage of a drug addict at this point right and you know they kind of work yeah i think he did clean i think he did clean up at some point but um you know and i guess he was just trying to make money any way he could he was never going to say no to these shoot interviews because it was just easy money and he could just go on there and play a gimmick so he was never saying anything um productive or interesting he was just doing his gimmick on the shoot interviews, but, um, and it ran its course really quick, you know, the, uh, the iron chic stuff and the tweets and all that. But, um, well, I thought so. People still retweet that shit all the time. And I'm like, all right, (laughs) fuck the wildfires. And it's like, okay, we're still doing, we're still doing this. All right. All caps, you know, is saying something topical about to the current events. All right, cool. All right. We're, we're, yeah. Yeah. Fuck the Hulk Hogan. Okay, we're still retweeting that. All right. <laughs> like, great. Or fuck the insert person in the news. <laughs> right, right, Iron right, Sheik right. has. Oh, okay. Iron Sheik has no idea who they are. No, <laughs> right. No, right. No, no idea. Just you know, whatever's going to get over with the Twitter crowd. But um, yeah, I don't know. I I you know, like anything else, like the Virgil stuff that ran its course too. You know, all that the fuck money and all oh that. my god, and, um, yeah, that that ran its course real it, quick. That shit's funny for like six months, and then it's like you, you, you have enough. You just got to block the accounts. But um, yeah, I mean, Sheik, uh, you know, you mentioned the Persian clubs. That was a recurring angle he'd do. He, I know he did it with uh, Paul Ellering. He mm-hmm. did it with Backlands. Ba- Blackjack Mulligan, he, I watched that one earlier. That was cool. Yeah, he would he would do the Persian club deal, which was a shoot a lot of the time. The clubs were a shoot. But then he would work do worked clubs you know, when he would do the analysts and nobody else could do what he could do with the clubs. Like he was the only one who could, who could swing clubs. But, um, that was one of his go-tos and he was, a uh, like we said it, you know, outside of the memeable promos that he was doing that we talked about, he was an effective promo for his character, you know, no matter where he went, you know, it kind of, it didn't matter if you couldn't understand every word he was saying, that really wasn't the point. You know, he was just this crazy, you know, Iranian guy who would rant and and say outrageous things and 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 always were obviously always work as a heel, obviously. Um, and he had, I think, a really good career and is one of the most memorable wrestling characters, really, of his era or really any other. Honestly, I mean, the Iron Sheik, like you said at the top, is the kind of guy who could pass that proverbial mom test. You know, people know to this day who the Iron Sheik is. And, you know, it was because he was part of that wrestling boom in that era. And, um, you know, but he also had his share of working on top, 
you know, the slaughter matches that we talked about and in some other places and with Hogan, obviously, and Mid-Atlantic, we had the nice run and the Backlund matches in 79. So it's not like he wasn't a major star and was just purely a gimmick. He absolutely was a major star, but I also think he's one of those guys who like a Hacksaw Duggan or a Ken Patera, a lot of people didn't really see his work until he was completely shot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even the slaughter matches are the, are like 84, you know, that's, it's, it, you know, a lot. I think when most people saw, saw Sheik, they remember him a few, a few years later into the eighties with the Volkov stuff. And, and after that, um, because you, you know you're really going back pretty far. You've got to be well into your 40s to have any kind of real time memory of some of his best work. You got to be made probably in your 50s to be honest to really have memories of you know 1980 Mid Atlantic or 1979 WWF or 1984 WWF. You know, so you know unless of course you've gone back and watched the footage. But I think people who just grew up with wrestling. You know, even in that first that 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 first boom in the eighties, you know, they really saw the guy when he was past his prime. Because after those slaughter matches, there just is nothing there. There's in terms of like work, there's just nothing there of note. You know, the 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 Corporal Kirshner matches, Kirshner's terrible, you know, and, and um they tried to replace Slaughter with Corporal Kirshner, one of Vince McMahon's many attempts to just recreate a gimmick with someone else <clears throat> failing to understand that the most important part is the charisma and Corporal Kirshner had no charisma and he certainly didn't have the charisma of Sergeant Slaughter, let alone the working ability or the promos or anything. You know, he tried to replace Jimmy Snuka with CV Afi and with, you know, um, which was a really poor attempt. And he tried to replace Snuka a few years before that. With uh, with Tonga Kid, who was better than C.V. Afi, but again, neither of these guys were Jimmy Snuka, you know. And then years later, he tried the the Diesel and Razor Ramon thing, and you know he tried bringing in a bunch of Hogan clones, whether it was you know Dan Spivey or you know many years later trying to redo Hulk Hogan with Lex Luger, or you know, there's all these various attempts to some degree where he was either blatantly trying to rip off a gimmick that had worked previously and had this arrogance that he could just make it work again with anybody in the role. And it never, ever worked. And Corporal Kirshner is one of the most famous examples of that. And those matches were just flat out awful. I mean, you know, Iron Sheik or Nikolai Volkov versus Corporal Kirshner or Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov versus Corporal Kirshner and like Junkyard Dog or something like that is the shits. So, I think he's one of those guys like a Ken Patera or a Hacksaw Jim Duggan or, you know, um, I, I know there's other examples that I'm, I'm not thinking of where, where just people saw them past their physical peak and saw them at their worst. And there was a whole generation of fans who just think, who, who don't understand how great Jim Duggan was in Mid-South. Or right, don't right, understand right. that that Ken Patera was so much better before he went to prison or don't understand that the Iron Sheik had, really does have a 
nice little catalog of matches that that would that might surprise people. You know, he was never a super worker or anything like that. But um he was definitely better than what he showed when once he hit that Nikolai Volkov tag team and the atrocious WCW work and uh, he's an old. He was an old man. I mean, he was probably fifty by the right. time he got. Th- and if he was really liked crack cocaine at that time too. So that probably and, aged yeah. him tremendously. Is <laughs> the fact that he really, really liked crack cocaine. Yeah, but an enduring star of the time period, and someone who I do encourage people listen. Without question, go watch those three slaughter matches from MSG and watch them in order, because they tell a nice little story. Go back and watch him beat Bob Backlund for the title because that's a historical match. It's a good. No, it's really honestly a good match. I I I, I, th- I was actually kind of surprised at how good it was. Yeah, and go back and watch him lose to Hulk Hogan. And then there's I think uh, there was a match going around where they have he has a rematch with Hogan. I think in Philly a month later, and people say that's a really good match. You know, because again, they they were probably had more freedom in that match to work a real match instead of just okay. They were told to have Hogan steamroll him in the title change, clearly. And, you know, I guess we should bring up that legend has it that Vern Gagne offered him $75,000 to shoot on Hulk Hogan and break his legs in that match. Because Vern felt spurned by Hogan walking out on him and leaving him hanging with those uh, big Christmas shows in Minneapolis. And, you know, he went to Vince and left without notice and all that. And Vern offered Sheik, who obviously he had a long relationship with, he broke him in, $75,000 to shoot on Hogan. And, you know, Hogan, uh, Sheik says it's true. Hogan says it's true, but who cares what Hogan says? Because Hogan... Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think enough people have corroborated that story for me to believe that's true. I know Greg Gagne has said that's not true, but I, you know, I mean, I don't know. It sounds, do you really want to admit that your dad <laughs> wanted to do that? But given, given Vern's state of mind at that time, like I, I can, I can totally buy it. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's that out of the realm of possibility. You know, well, Harley race always used to say that he was offered money to shoot on Hulk Hogan. So, I mean, iron Sheik, the idea would have been that he was a shooter and he could have, Oh, he could have absolutely done whatever he wanted to, to, to Hogan. But, but the problem is, Hogan was like 28 and 300 pounds. Sheik was in his 40s. You know, I'm not saying Sheik couldn't have taken him out, but I don't know if it would have been as easy as some people think. And, you know, I know race is considered one of the toughest men. Like, all of the wild stories of, you know, just ripping people's eyeballs out and biting their noses off and shit like that. Him and Meng. Or the two guys you hear that about, Haku. But again, race was like 50 when he was asked to shoot on Hogan. And, you I, know, size I, does matter. I think, Sheik, I think Sheik would have a better chance than than race because race was just like an old school barroom brawler. I, I think Sheik probably could have stretched Hogan in some way or, or done something. You know what I mean? Like, I think he could have went if he would have been able to get him down or get him in a position, I think, do some some sort of. You know, old school amateur wrestling thing. Whereas Harley Race, it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take the kid. You know what I mean? Type of thing. Where I, yeah, I don't know if he could do that. But I, I think Sheik, similar to like, you know, uh, somebody like a Billy Robinson or whatever, who you know, at, at many ages, or, or Luthez at, at, you know, a pretty old age, could still, could still do some stuff to make you really, really pain. You know, get, getting a whole lot, hell of a lot of pain. You know, based off manipulating your arms or manipulating your, your, your body or whatever. Yeah, 
Well, the thing would be Sheik would wait for Hogan to be in a vulnerable position. Right, right. And, and then, you know, grab his arm or grab his leg or whatever and do something like that. So, Which is a lot different than just stepping up to someone and challenging them to a fight. And then, you know, speaking of Billy Robinson, I think there's that famous story early on in Sheik's career where uh, they, they, they rolled with each other and Sheik was insisting that Robinson couldn't turn him over and beat him. And then... Um, you know, with his wrestling background and Robinson used some old hooker techniques from the fucking 1800s, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and shit that the Sheik had never seen as an amateur wrestler. Right. He, th- he know, thought they and, were doing amateur wrestling and then Robinson went with, you know, hooker stuff and, 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 yeah. and drove his knee into his hip and basically like, I, I don't know if he dislocated his hip or, or just did something to his hip and everybody was kind of pissed at Billy Robinson because they're like, ah, uh, that's our coach. You know, that's our Olympic coach that you just, you know, just fucked up his hip. So thanks a lot, buddy. But yeah. Yeah, so, you know, there's all kinds of, like, techniques that, you know, like an amateur wrestler wouldn't be ready for. And, and, you know, someone like Hogan obviously wouldn't be ready for anything. So, yeah, I mean, there's a good chance he could have, you know, he he probably would have, again, waited for him to be vulnerable. And then if he was going to go through with it. But, um, I mean, that would have been something. It would have (laughs) been a butterfly effect kind of deal for sure. I mean, I think eventually... McMahon would have found a way to put the title on Hogan anyway, but in those days, if a sold-out Madison Square Garden saw the Iron Sheik beat the guy up, would that have sapped all of Hogan's, right? Um, you know, mojo? Like, would people not believe in Hogan? Would it have killed Hogan? Who knows? It may have. You know, in this era, I don't know if it would matter. We saw Daniel Pewter on live TV tap out Kurt Angle. It didn't fucking matter at the end of the day, right? Like... Nobody said, oh, Kurt Angle, he's a fraud. I'm, I'm not buying a ticket to see him anymore. I mean, so like, and that was what? That may have been, that was almost 20 years ago. That was 2003, I want to say that was. 2003, 2004. 2003, like, 2004, yeah. You know, and, and it didn't even matter then. So like today, it definitely wouldn't matter. I don't think it would matter at all if somebody, you know, because I don't know if people know what we're talking about, but when they were doing Tough Enough or whatever, and Daniel Pewter was a, a, a trained shoot fighter and, for some reason, they put Kurt Angle on live TV and had him shooting with the with the Tough Enough people. And, you know, he, he obviously Angle was good enough to out-wrestle all these clowns. But then when he came up against Pewter, um, it didn't – what isn't this – isn't how the story goes like pewter didn't want to do it like he didn't No, pewter like, was like yeah he, they, they were like no do it and he was like i uh what, like, what i know i'm gonna beat this yeah guy. what if like, i beat I him and they're like no you're not gonna beat him and he's like but what if i do like what am i supposed to do and they're like no just go out there and do your thing and he's like okay and then of course he did his thing and then got punished for it by yeah in the royal rumble every single you know shit bag you know fake tough guy in that company came out and chopped him as hard as possible and hit him as hard as possible. Your hardcore Hollies and your Guerrero's and your Benoit's or whatever just basically had their way with the guy and then they fucking buried him and then they hated him forever. So it was like, all right, thanks. <laughs> cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like awesome. Yeah, Greg, so. He did what he was told and he shot on angle and he put him in a, a Kimura or something or an arm bar or something like that. And um, the referee quickly jumped in and broke it up. But <laughs> angle got punked out on live TV didn't matter no half the people listening to this probably don't even know what we're talking about but in 1984 that would have mattered yeah would it have made a difference it could have but i guess we'll never know but that's the iron cheek there it is yep went a little long but hey he's the fucking iron cheek so he deserves an hour and a half so there you go that is the the iron cheek uh life and the career 
of the Iron Sheik. Uh, let's get to AEW ticket sales. Let's do that for uh, a brief moment before we get to uh, a little bit more of New Japan with the G1 Climax and Dominion. Uh, some interesting notes here about AEW ticket sales for their upcoming show. So obviously, CM Punk officially announced for AEW Collision uh, a couple weeks ago. Then this week on Dynamite, we get the official announcement of the match. It's going to be CM Punk and FTR versus uh, Jay White, Juice Robinson and Samoa Joe. Uh, so we get the main event announcement. And I think it's a good time to look at how ticket sales have moved since the punk announcement and then now since this match announcement i actually have both numbers too from wrestletex which is is great they just did an update uh, about an hour ago right right when we went live uh that had you know so we, we got before the so we got okay here we go june 4th i got both numbers here june 4th for the AEW collision debut at the united center current setup Again, this is per WrestleTix, 10,214. Available tickets, 2,214. Tickets distributed right, as of right now, 8,000. So that their estimates are that 994 tickets moved since the Punk announced. And so essentially, 1,000 tickets moved once they said, okay, guys, CM Punk's going to be there. 1,000 tickets move. Okay. This week on Dynamite, then they announce, here's what the match is going to be. Since then, we're just kind of trickling, not a whole lot. Russell Tix is estimating about 167 tickets have moved since the match announcement. So it's only been 24 hours. So who knows exactly what that means or if we can extrapolate anything from that. But it wasn't a mad dash to the to the box office immediately to say, oh, my God, it's going to be FTR and CM Punk versus, you know, it was it wasn't a, a, a mad dash. And now they're at eight thousand two hundred and thirty three with about a week left to go until uh, collision itself. Uh, actually occurs. So there you go. We're at 8,233 for the United Center, uh, the collision debut. W what do you make of, of that number so far? So when's the last time an AEW television show, because they're probably going to sell, by the time the show starts, I would say there's going to be over 9,000 people there. They have a shot to get to 10,000. When's the last time an AEW television taping did 10,000 fans. I'm, I'm asking genuinely because I can't... I mean, last night, Dynamite didn't even do 3,000 sold. And the Dynamite in Chicago that you're going to, same city as Collision, is sitting at 49.92. Right. Yeah, it's the Forbidden Door Go Home Show, June 21st. Uh, Wintrust <laughs> Arena, so a different arena. The setup is 6,000 to it. So the setup is only just under... Or just over six thousand, and right now they're just under five thousand. They're set up for less than collision sold, right? Um, and they sold a couple hundred tickets, I guess, since they announced the match that Punk is going to be in. So I think it, it's safe to say they'll get to nine thousand. They could get to ten thousand. They just had a pay per view that barely did ten thousand sold. So when you give it that kind of perspective, it's very clear that th this is what we know now. We know that CM Punk is unable to sell out the United Center just based on people knowing he's going to be there. But we kind of knew that already. That was going to be a one-time thing. His return was one of the biggest things in wrestling, modern wrestling history. That was kind of going to be an anomaly. And we do know that his drawing power was producing some diminishing returns as he moved along in his AEW run. And that was naturally what was going to happen. You go to these cities the first time. They all want to see CM Punk. You start coming to the cities the second time. All right, we've seen CM Punk. Now we want to know what you guys are, you know what I mean? So, um, but he was still, you know, you look at 
the history of AEW. He's still involved in the biggest pay-per-views and up until, you know, this all-in Wembley deal, if you throw that out, uh, some of the biggest attendances and gates in the in company history. And now the Collision Show is going to draw more fans for television taping than they've done in I don't even know how long. And it has a chance to do more paid than their pay-per-view just did. So when you look at that in a vacuum, it's very obvious. And, and listen, no one's buying tickets to that show other than because of CM Punk. I mean, nothing else was announced. When they announced they were going to do it in Chicago, everybody knew what that meant. Then they announced Punk and everybody, you know, and, and now the one match they've announced is Punk. Punk has is responsible for drawing whatever that show Right, draws. it's almost 100% on him. No, nobody is buying that ticket because, oh my God, AEW Collision is coming great. No, it's 100% Punk. It's Punk. Yeah, and it's going to do, um, you know, so I think it's, it's like a bit odd that people are spinning this as, ah, look at it, this collision is proof that Punk doesn't draw. What? Collision, the collision in Chicago is proof that he is still a draw because that those tickets are moving. If you want to make the argument that that Punk isn't a draw, you've got to look at some of these Canadian collision shows that are coming afterwards, which still haven't moved any tickets since he's been announced. Right. That's where the problem lies. This this Chicago show in collision is going to be a massive success for them. This is going to be one of the biggest television tapings they do in terms of gate. Um, and it's it's blowing away any dynamite. I mean, it's it's destroying every dynamite, this, this collision in Chicago. So from that standpoint, uh, that's a win for the company, and that's a W for CM Punk. It's some of these other shows where if they don't improve drastically, once it's like, okay, everyone knows what collision is. They've debuted the show. We all saw it. Now, now we all know what we're going to get when Collision comes to town, a full-on AEW television show with CM Punk, and then these tickets still don't move. Those now become L's for CM Punk. I don't want to hear any talk about this collision in Chicago being an L. Yeah, no, Punk. no, that that's absurd. Yeah, anybody who's who's making that argument that that's absolutely absurd because they're probably they going like twenty. They just did like twenty nine hundred fans last night in Colorado Springs. <laughs> right, right, right. You, you can't sit here and tell me that this isn't a, a great number for for television. Well, yeah, and the other the other look at look at that dynamite in Chicago. Dynamite Forbidden Door Go Home show June 21st in Chicago. Now, obviously, you're doing two Chicago shows in, 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 in a short amount of time. But like we said, that one, they, they even knew. They set that thing up for 6,000. You know, they, they knew that that thing. And, and, and they're, they're at 5,000 right now. Eh, well, they get to 6,000 maybe, you know, depending on who's going to be there for the Forbidden Door build maybe or whatever. But like, yeah, they, 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 anybody who can look at the, the United Center thing is like, oh, man, they definitely like, did they think that they were going to get, you know, snap your fingers, sell out? Like, I, I don't think that they did. And, and may, you know, maybe they honestly, you know, honestly, maybe they did. Maybe they maybe Punk thought that. And that's why he wanted his name off the all the announcements and stuff and wanted, you know, it to be a complete surprise. And then now we've seen that that AW or, or Punk or whoever has realized, OK, we're going to have to put a little bit more juice behind this thing uh, to sell this. And, and that's essentially where we're at now. But it's still like you said, it's, it's Punk that's still selling this thing. It's not like they 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 tried to go at it with complete mystery like they did for the first dance. Complete mystery. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, but we're not going to tell you. And everybody got it and everybody bought tickets and everybody knew what it was. But it was one of the biggest, most massive stories in history. Anybody who thought that this thing was going to be a snap your finger sellout was probably being pretty naive because that we're not talking about one of the biggest stories of all. A big story. No doubt a big story, but nothing like it was before. And we've seen AEW have to sort of adjust a little bit and say, okay, we're going to have to announce that Punk's going to be there 
And we're now going to have to announce the match that's going to happen. But again, like you said, any number that's attributed to this collision is punk. It, it, it is. It just has to be. And it is. And it's not like the United Center is going to be half full. We're, we're looking at 2000 available tickets or, or even less than that at this point. You know, less than um, less than a thousand or less than 2000 available tickets. One thousand nine hundred eighty one uh, available tickets. And like you said, probably with walk ups and stuff like that, they're, they're going to get to Easily nine thousand, probably ten thousand, probably ten thousand, or at least real, high and a, high and high end nine thousand. They've got a real chance at ten thousand. I mean, we're what eleven days away, ten days away, or something like that. Um, week and a half away. Yeah, yeah. They, they're, they're, they got another week and a half to hype it. Um, I'm, they may not get to ten, but they're going to knock on the door of double or nothing, which. I mean that that's a big for 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 their standards in 2023. That's big for TV. I mean, drawing 10,000 is big for you know Raw doesn't do 10,000 every week. You know, I, I mean, there's a Raw coming up that's that has like 4,800 tickets out. So I mean, the collision in Chicago is big. But the question now is, is has the Punk fatigue hit everyone else to the point where he can only draw in Chicago? Right, and that's you know and, some real yeah. And WrestleTix has you know updated stuff as of this week, and now we're recording this on the on, on the eighth. Um, so some of these numbers may change, but yeah, the follow-ups in Canada are not looking very good and there's a multitude of reasons. And, and like we said, Griffin Peltier wrote a very good article uh, for voice of wrestling.com a, a couple of weeks ago about some of the pitfalls of this, you know, collision tour in Canada and, and the ticket prices being way too high and people not, not really being fully sure how the hell they can even watch collision and, and what collisions even worth and, and all that. So, so it's a multitude of things, but regardless, you look at the numbers, they announced that punks here for collision. They said, here you go. And the numbers have not, moved very much um the one in toronto june 24th in toronto uh right now 1853 that's in scotia bank arena by the way which they only set that thing up for 3445 they've only sold 1853 essentially like 91 to 100 if you want to round up and say 100 tickets have moved since the punk announcement so not nearly enough to have everybody in toronto say well fuck we got to be there for a collision it just didn't happen and and they're you know, will they get to their three thousand? Maybe, but right now they're 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 not they're not that close. You know, they're just you know two hundred under a uh, uh, thousand. Uh, June twenty third in uh, Hamilton. Or I think I might have that date wrong, but the the, the show in Hamilton. Uh, June 29th. Yes, they have seven thousand seven hundred eighty four seven hundred eighty four tickets distributed for that show right now. That's pathetic. There's two thousand two hundred thirty three available tickets there. They they set that thing up for three thousand, and they've sold seven hundred eighty four tickets. Yeah, it's it's hard. More people are listening to this right, right now. Yeah, than will then have bought tickets to that show in Hamilton. That's not good. That's not good at all. Yeah, no, it's horrible. It's it's awful. Like they, nothing has moved in these Canadian cities mm-hmm. since they've announced them. Regina, which, July eighth, they're at one thousand three hundred forty six, which is roughly. I mean, again, like we're talking minuscule differences between. We talked about these numbers last week. Uh, Calgary, July twenty, uh, July fifteenth. 3,425. Not bad, but still, they only set the thing up for 4,481. Calgary's a place they haven't been a bunch. Uh, there's still about 1,000 tickets it's, available for that show, too. It's also over a month away. I think they're going to hit the setup, but the setup, like, the setup's only for 4,500 fans. You know? Right. And same for Newark the week after. The setup is for 5,500 fans. I think they're going to hit that. They're already over 4,000, and the show's not until July 22nd. 
because you got to remember nothing is announced for any of these shows you know you, you're gonna do you're gonna announce some big matches for these things especially if tickets aren't moving so i think calgary and nork will do fine but just based on their setups and the setups are small that's a big building in nork and they're mm-hmm. only set up for 5500 yeah it's prudential I mean, center that's a big time hockey arena and and yeah they, they set that thing up for a quarter of what it can actually hold yeah so and the the, the canadian cities are just a disaster they're a complete and total disaster which it makes you think you know with the bigger canadian city in calgary and with nork maybe you shouldn't have run places like hamilton and regina but at the same time I don't know when they booked these cities if they meant for them to be TV because we don't know the timeline of when the collision deal came together. Maybe these were supposed to be those house rule shows. I think they were. Weren't some of them supposed to be house? I know rule the shows, one in Calgary was. Yeah, and that so, might that might be the, one of the reasons why it's doing okay is because that show has been announced and in the books for for a while. But uh, as far as some of the other ones, I I, I don't know about those ones if they were. I know so for some a fact of these Calgary were meant to ones. be. That could have been why they picked some of these cities and some of these buildings in Canada, because they were meant to just be these house rules, house shows where they're intentionally running second and third tier cities and second and third tier buildings because they're trying to keep the cost down. So, you know, but even if you want to throw out these Canadian cities where the tickets just aren't moving, you know, Nork, all right, they, they're going to get to the 5,500, but 5,500 people in that building so the bottom line here is once we get through this little run and the show starts going and we start getting matches announced, if, if they don't significantly start moving tickets, I think that's when we move our conversation to, okay, is punk strictly now just a Chicago draw? And do all these other places have punk fatigue? Or not even necessarily punk fatigue, just punk isn't going to make any difference above and beyond what AEW is drawing anyway. Right, right, right. Because I these think- cal- these these Calgary and Nork numbers look like the lousy dynamite numbers. That right, seeing. right, right. And there, there's some interesting shows coming up in the next couple of days that I want to keep, make note of, too, because like Greensboro's coming up. A uh, few other cities that were given punk as like put him on the graphics, say punk is going to be there. You know, what I mean, like where some of these other shows were like, hey, collisions coming to Regina. And it's like, all right, what the hell is collision? Why? You know, type of thing. If you weren't in on what's going on. You have no earthly idea why this random show is coming to Regina or what, you know what I mean? Like now, like these Greensboro shows and there's a few other shows, this is all post punk announcement punks all over the thing. It's the graphics as punk. The thing says, watch CM punk at AEW collision and the Greensboro cause like the, the, the marketing muscle is using CM punk for all of those shows too. So if those ones come back as disappointing too, then we could say, okay, this guy isn't, you know, he, he he is able to draw in Chicago. He is able to draw for his return. He is able to do this. But maybe, like you said, he isn't going to draw above and beyond what the brand is drawing right now. He's not going to be a special difference maker like he was two years ago. That maybe is not going to be the case anymore. And he, he's just going to be a guy that's going to help AEW draw whatever AEW is going to draw, but isn't going to be a guy that people are going to buy tickets and, and trip over themselves to buy tickets to go see like he was two years ago. Yeah, no, I, you know, I agree. Um, someone in the chat says we're going to gloss over the factor in the NHL Capitals building next week for Dynamite. That's 20,000 seat building and they can't give them away. No, what I'm saying is that's why I'm saying the punk collision number is impressive because they're not selling tickets anywhere. Right. They're, they're doing a for, pretty bad job of selling tickets for their weekly television shows right now. I think Detroit did OK a few weeks ago. Didn't Detroit have like 7,000 or something? I mean... 
but outside of that, they're not doing well for for dynamite or collision, which is my point when it comes to collision in Chicago and why it's like a head scratcher, why people are burying that number when that's going to be the best TV number they do in ages. And they just had a pay-per-view where they gave away 1,500 tickets and barely had 10,000 people in the building. You know, but then you look Forbidden Door sells out instantly and they're going to have 80,000 people in the building for Wembley. <laughs> right. And opening so, up new, new, new seats all the time in both those. <clears throat> they just opened up floor seats for Wembley, I yeah. think, or really good seats. I don't know if they were floor seats necessarily, but, um, you know, and all told, you know, Wembley's up to like 66,000 tickets sold. They haven't announced a match and we have months to go. They're going to announce huge matches. They're going to sell over 70,000 tickets. They might hit 75,000, and they're going to have over 80,000 people in the building, which is going to make it one of the biggest wrestling shows in the history of the, of the fucking sport in terms of people in the building, and paid, for that matter, and gate, okay? So it's just so weird that these rank-and-file television shows are struggling so hard and the house shows aren't doing well either. I mean, I know they're running like third and fourth tier cities, but, and you know, they're keeping the cost way down, but I'm not going to sit here ever and be like praising them for drawing 2,100 people in Corbin, Kentucky. I mean, it's, it's none of these shows are drawing with the exception of the shows that are special events like forbidden door, all in punk coming back to Chicago. Outside of that, they can't sell a fucking ticket. Right. The brand, I mean, the brand itself feels weak, right? In in terms of ticket sales and, and stuff like that. Whereas the brand still, there's there's a understanding that for the big major shows they deliver, and you know that when you buy a ticket to Forbidden Door or All In or the Punk Collision or whatever that you're going to get. But like the rank and file, hey, Dynamite's coming to your town is like, yeah, you know, people are kind of just saying, eh, yeah, I'm good right now, and that's that's. You know, it's good. To, it's good to have the all in thing. It's good to have forbidden door. It's good to have collision. It's good to have these sort of things. But it's it's yeah, it's it's I think it's pretty telling that the rank and file stuff, like you said, that the brand itself is is not drawing people to the building like it was, you know, a year ago, two years ago. Yeah. So. um And again, it's weird because, you know, who knows what this can these Canadian shows and. um you know, but you know, it's, it's this we'll- Greensboro number I'm fascinated by because I've been getting I don't know why they're sending me ads, but I get like an ad for this Greensboro show like every day telling me to buy this thing and, and tickets are on sale and just punks faces everywhere. This is one of the first shows that's had that muscle of go out there and say CM Punk's coming. I'm fascinated to see how that number does, because if this thing comes back and it's you know 2000, then we're like, all right, then now we can have a real conversation about wh- what's going on here. The, the Canada thing we might have to throw out. We don't know. We'll have to see. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't I don't know just yet. It could either be the sign of what's to come or it could just be an aberration. I, I don't know if we're going to know that right away, but I think we'll, we'll probably be able to find that out pretty, pretty quickly. I think this Greensboro well, show is going to be a big tell you straight up. I can tell you straight up. They're delaying his heel turn because they feel like they're not selling tickets and they need him as a baby face to sell tickets in these cities. So they know that these shows are struggling. And obviously we could all look and see that a lot of these shows are struggling, but um, you know, the, 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 some of the, it was pitched that he would turn heel much sooner. Now they're kind of like, Oh no, we might not want to do that. You know? So 
Um, they feel like or maybe you do, <laughs> maybe you do and sell some, t- cause this ain't selling tickets as the, as the face. So maybe, maybe sell some tickets as a heel. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea is let's just go full on punk as a baby face, build the show around them and see if he could turn these, some of these cities around. It isn't happening yet. Um, you know, outside of Chicago, we just went through it. It's, uh, it's pretty poor. It's mirroring dynamite. So, which, you, which you know, there's no dynamite sitting at 700 tickets. That Hamilton show is looking like a complete disaster. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sub a thousand, you know, it's, um, some of these TV tapings are going to draw what like a, a new Japan show draws. And that's not taking a shot at new Japan, but that's a show on access TV in the middle of the night that has 70,000 viewers. You know, and I know they're not running every week, but the New Japan shows are doing 21, 2200 fans. So, uh, I don't know. It's something that we'll just keep tracking and keep looking at. Absolutely. Yeah, keep keep an eye on that. But, uh, yeah, plenty of uh, plenty of stuff coming up uh, uh, in like we tend in AEW this summer and 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 the entire wrestling world as well. I mean, just a, a nuts summer uh, on the way here with SummerSlam coming up, and obviously for for AEW, you got the Collision debut in Chicago. Uh, we are going to do coverage of that. Uh, well, do you think real quick? Yeah. Do you, so they announced the six man tag that I told everybody they were going to do for week one. Week two still on the books. I'm still being told it's Punk versus Jay White for week two, which would be June 24th in, in Toronto. You think that could be a drawing match? CM Punk versus uh, Jay White in Toronto? Uh, I don't know. The way they've booked Jay White so far? Yeah, uh, <laughs> right. I, no, not really. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of where you say, wouldn't it have been nice if Jay White has been treated like a megastar from the jump? Because that would probably help about now rather than a guy who had a weird mid-card feud, Ricky Starks. And, you know, now they've got a couple weeks here to heat up Jay White for CM Punk and do whatever they're going to do in that six-man to get ready for the 24th. And listen, they're going to load up these collisions, especially week one. They're going to load them up with big matches because they want collision to get off to a good start. And in a weird way, I think for fans who don't care about the business side of wrestling, this is a good thing because they're going to load up these collisions knowing they need to sell some tickets. You know, they, they, they know that they're going to need big cards to push tickets to these things. So it's going to be all hands on deck in terms of the collision lineups beyond week one and week two if these ticket sales still look the way that they do. So that's something else to think about. Yeah, but like you said, good good for us. You know, the the viewing audience says their desperation is 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 going to pay off, and hopefully, some pretty. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're going to do Swerve and Keith Lee on Collision, and it's like, I think that match could have been a drawing match two months ago. Is anyone fired up for Swerve versus Keith Lee anymore? No, that would have been good. You know, five four that's months ago I mean. or so. Yeah, <laughs> maybe and right now, they, not so much. Were, yeah, and I know they kept it they, that this was the reason. But still, you did nothing really to keep it hot. And it would have been hard to keep it hot that long anyway without doing it. It's just amazing that they haven't had that match yet. Is what it comes down to. And it's almost like... Well, it's funny because it, when you mention that match, people are like, well, they oh yeah, they didn't blow it off, right? Because it feels like they did, but then they didn't. They did not. And yeah. it's like, you could have just done that match when it would have meant more and just built something else for these... You have a massive roster. 
You don't have to keep a match on ice for that long. And then Keith Lee ages 40 years in between the time that the match would have felt hot. What the fuck is he doing, Rich? This is an aesthetic business. I mean, he's not an accountant. He looks fine for a normal person. He has sapped all of his star power with that goofy gray hair. What is this man doing? It's quiet quitting. I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure what he's doing. Yeah, it's, but, um, yeah, and Swerve's done like six different things since the breakup. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, it's just the wrong time. Few yeah. since then, and now we're going back to it. Um, you know, and if that's going to be your second biggest match on the first collision, I don't know. Um, but the first collision, you know, whatever. It's it's those other ones that they have to worry about at this point. But anyway, I didn't. I mean, to cut off whatever you were setting up. No, there. no, you're good. You're good. I was just saying, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, you know, flagshippatreon.com, our, uh, our Patreon, which uh, you can do $5 tier or $10 tier. Uh, we're going to have a lot of coverage of this stuff coming up over the next couple of weeks and, and months throughout this entire summer. We will have a some sort of collision. We're still trying to figure that out. You will get collision coverage for sure, whether it's live or a couple hours after collision, you are going to get something, some sort of audio for collision soon after. We're not, we can't call it Instagram live because we're not 100% sure if we're going to be able to go live immediately after the show or we might have to do it a couple hours after, in which case we won't do instant reaction live, but you are going to get something. You are going to get something for AEW collision uh, coming up on the 17th. Uh, we will, however, be going live immediately after Forbidden Door, though. You are going to get instant reaction live for Forbidden Door. Uh, so make sure you are subscribed for that. FlagshipPatreon.com. It's the beginning of the month. We always say that's a great time to subscribe. You get all the content for the month. Plus, you're locked in. No matter what, you're going to get Forbidden Door. You're going to get Collision. It's a huge. June is a huge, huge, huge month. So you're going to get all the stuff that we do, all the bonus audio, all the bonus writing we do. I just wrote a great thing about uh, the Chikara shutdown angle that's 10 years old at this point, which seems unbelievable to me that it's 10 years old at this point. Uh, you get the Thursday Dynamite reviews. You get my bonus VOW retro series. I'm working on my AWF series right now. Uh, Sky's the Limit, my Cruiserweight Classic series. That's available at FlagshipPatreon.com uh, as well. So a ton of stuff on there. But if you're really into the event coverage, which is the stuff that really moves things uh, for the Patreon, you're going to get Forbidden Door Instant Reaction Live. That is guaranteed locked in. You're getting that immediately following the show. We're going to go live. In AUW Collision, you're going to get something, whether it's live or an hour or two afterwards or whatever. We're going to do something for Collision. We just have to figure out exactly how to do that uh, this this year. But uh, we'll, 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 you'll get for the Collision debut, you'll get something from us and uh, plenty of other stuff throughout the summer as well. We've been talking about it and, and going back and forth and trying to make sure we cover as much stuff from this wild, wild summer uh, that we possibly can. So now is a great time. This entire summer is a great time uh, to get on board. $5 tier or $10 tier flagshippatreon.com. If you want the instant reaction lives, those are all going to be on $10 tier. Uh, all the other bonus audio on the $5 tier, but just subscribe to the 10. You get the writing, the live shows, you get the flagship live, you get a bunch of stuff for $10. So you might as well just do that. All right. Anything else, Joe? On this AEW stuff? No. No. All right. Well, all right. One more, one more thing we got to get out of the way, and then we'll get into uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, I do have to let you know that this episode of the flagship podcast is brought to you by the Bet Stamp app, which is helping thousands of people win at sports betting for free. The same way that travelers use Google Flights or Expedia to find the best prices, bettors can now use BetStamp to do the very same. When you place a bet, the odds given by a sportsbook will determine how much you can possibly win, even when betting on the same outcome 
Different sports books will offer varying payouts, and those differences can be huge. Thankfully, BetStamp allows you to easily line shot for the most profitable odds across all sports books. So all you can do is you click on any matchup you want, and you'll instantly see the different odds for the game lines, player props, even futures bets. You'll see them all right there. And line shopping is the simplest way to find an edge in sports betting and maximize your chances of winning long term. On average, BetStamp users win an extra $1,000 yearly just by line shopping. Hey, you want to bet on the Nuggets to win game four of the NBA finals? You go there, you click, and you say, who's going to give me the best odds? That's who matters. It's not, okay, well, this book is giving me this. Who's giving you the best odds? Who's going to make you the most money? That's what matters. And you can do all that on the BetStamp app, on the Apple iOS store, Google Play, or through your browser at BetStamp.app. That's B-E-T-S-T-A-M-P dot A-P-P slash V-O-W. BetStamp.app slash V-O-W. Access all of these benefits. Make sure you sign up using our promo code V-O-W and start your journey to successful sports betting today. If you forget to use that sign-up code, um, don't worry. You can always enter that in your BetStamp account settings afterwards and make sure you get access to all the great stuff that BetStamp can offer you. Again, that's betstamp.app slash VOW, promo code VOW, or find the BetStamp app on the Apple iOS store and Google Play. And we, of course, thank them for sponsoring this week's show. All right, let's get to the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling, Joe. We had Dominion and we had G1 Climax lineups. You want to start with Dominion or do you want to dive into these G1 Climax lineups? Up to you. Dealer's choice. No, we'll, we'll do the Dominion first. <coughs> All right. So let's do Dominion. So we get 7,040 in Osaka, Joe Hall uh, for Dominion. I, I'm still like, I don't know about Japanese attendance numbers. I think we're fine. I don't think there's restrictions, but you can't look at it year over year. You can't. So it's like, I, I'm still going to wait like six to eight months there's, before I care at all about Japanese attendances again. There's, there's no restrictions. And that, that, that's a shit number. I'm sorry. That's, 7,000 in that building when pre-pandemic they were putting 12,000 in that building. And last year, with whatever their restrictions there were, whether it was seating restrictions or whether it was uh, clap crowds or and, and with far more with being less removed from COVID itself and being more COVID fear, they only beat last year's number by like 1,000. And they still only put 7,000 people in the building. So... I'm sorry, you cannot do a victory lap over that. This is not a good number, okay? New Japan is not all the way back in terms of business. I think that's obvious. That's very obvious. That's very clear. I think that's why they're taking part in all these all-together now shows and doing business because all these companies are trying to help lift each other up because they're all trying to dig out of this COVID thing. And what this number tells me is they're not even close to digging all the way back out of it because there were no restrictions this time around at all. No seating restrictions, no cheering restrictions, nothing. And they still only did 7,000 fans. Now, with that said, you have Yota Suji in your main event, okay? They know they weren't packing 12,000 people in this thing, okay? They knew that. They're, they're rocket packing a new guy. They're giving a young lion, a guy who the last time anybody saw him was a young lion, the main event slot here, against an unproven world champion, Sonata, who, let's face it, I have enough evidence now. He is not over as a world champion. These New Japan fans do not see him as a top-tier star the way that they see Okada, Naito go right down the line. They just don't, okay? So you have a champion who they're trying to get over as a big star, and it has not worked yet. Once again, 
tepid crowd reactions. When are people going to give me the W on this? Okay, people wanted Suji to win. Goddamn, they wanted Yota Suji to win, did they? Now, now listen. Last time, they they were behind Hiromu, and look, Hiromu is very popular. Hiromu's Hiromu. I mean, that that's a big time dude. I was going to say that he's a very popular wrestler. He's over. It's the guy defending his unit against the guy who betrayed the unit. Um, Hiromu was positioned as the babyface in the match, and Sonata was positioned as the heel. I get it. But now this is another one. Now I understand it's 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 people want to rally behind the underdog. I understand that, and I feel like there would have been fans who would have been rooting for Yota Suji, no matter who he was, no matter if, whether it was Okada or Naito or whoever else in this spot as world champion, uh, Will Ospreay, whoever you want to pick, because of the underdog dynamic and because of the structure of the match and all of those things, it was designed for that. But still, Sonata never gets uh, any kind of great reaction when he comes out. And and when he's in these world title matches, they're always rooting for the other guy. I mean, and 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 they sold seven thousand tickets for the show. Okay, seven thousand tickets for the show. Okay, so he's still a work in progress. He is certainly not over at the level of what you expect a New Japan World Champion to be over. I'm sorry, I'm taking the W on this now. I, I I've been tepid on it. I've been kind of holding back. Because I'm like, I'm going to give it some time and enough people are annoyed with me because, uh, you know, they think, but, but I've seen enough now. The guy just isn't over like a top star. He is, he, you know, if you ranked out the stars in this company, he'd probably be like fifth or sixth or seventh at best. I mean, that's, it's, it, even though he's the world champion, it is what it is. Okay. And they're trying to get him over. And maybe at some point, if he holds the title long enough, he will get over like a proper new Japan world champion. But right now he's not. Okay, he just threw seven thousand. Now look, it's Yota Suji. I understand all of that. I get it, but and uh, I don't want to hear about ticket prices. I don't want to hear about uh, any kind of uh, rainy day, sunny day bullshit. They sold seven thousand tickets for Dominion, and the reasons are Yota Suji is coming off being a young line, and they didn't even give him any. He didn't even work the tour. This was his first match back after being a straight up black tights young lion. It's Yota Suji. And and it's Sonata. So if you want to give him a pass for the fact that you have Yota Suji challenging for a title and that Sonata isn't, that fans don't really completely buy him as a top-of-the-line star yet, that's fine. All I'm telling you is that's why they did 7,000. Right, you got to call, call a spade a spade. It was a risky, it was a risky draw. It, it was a risky draw, and it was a, a worthy draw to say, hey, we're going to try to make a guy. We're trying to make a new champion. We're trying to make a guy. It's a risk, but... We got to call it what it is. You know what I mean? That, that's the number. The number is the number, number. So it's not a great number. And it, I don't think you could spin the number. I really don't think you can when they did over 6,000 fans last year, when more people were scared of COVID and whatever restrictions were in place. I don't even care what they were. Even if it wasn't seating restrictions and it was just uh, clapping, there were some kind of restrictions last year, is the bottom line. And they almost did as well as they did this year. Okay. And you go back and look. And, you know, in 2019, pre COVID, you know, th- this show did 12,000 fans. Dominion. Dominion is a show that usually does 12,000 fans. 2018, 12,000 fans for Dominion. Okay? And look, I, 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 it just, I, all I'm saying is they are clearly not all the way back from COVID. And to be honest, this is the perfect time to fuck around and put the title right, on somebody exactly. like Sonata and try to get him over. This is the perfect time to uh, give somebody like Yota Suji a rocket pack push and give him a title match when he returns. Because you know the company is not all the way back anyway. So why burn off your best shit? This is the time to where you can try to get people over 
and the company is well booked right now. They're giving a lot of new people chances. It's very clearly a rebuilding year in terms of giving new people opportunities to blossom into stars. And this is really the perfect time to do that. It really is. Um, you know, when, when you know uh, you're probably not even capable of drawing 12,000 fans right now to, uh, to Osaka, to a Dominion show. So fuck it. You know, let's try this new guy's world champion. Try to get him over and, and let's firmly establish Yota Suji as a guy. Because that's what this show did. It firmly established Yota Suji as a real guy that people need to pay attention to. So that's my take on the attendance and the booking of the show overall. So let's 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 start with that main event uh, right away. Then Sonata versus Yota Suji. Seventeen minutes, one second. Sonata gets the win over Yota Suji. Uh, Suji, I thought he looked impressive as hell, uh, and he's a guy that that I have always been pretty high on. And I thought when they were going to do the, he's going to come back and he's immediately going to be you know thrust to the, the main event. They had to see something in this guy, and I think that they were probably right because he came out, just had a presence about him. Carried himself well, carries himself well, good gear, good look, good music. Uh, he has a very, uh, <laughs> very collar tugging uh, uh, nickname, though. I don't know. Can I can I even say that? The the gene blast? <laughs> I don't know. That's a very odd. The gene blast. I don't know. That's uh, that's an odd one there, but uh, it's going to work. Hey, because this guy looks I guess he's a gene blast, but he went out there and the match itself. He got this crowd. I mean, because like you said, Whatever you want to say about Sonata, the crowd really does, just doesn't give a shit about this guy at all, right? I mean, like, why? why we're pretending that like Yotsuji goes out there, does a spear, the crowd goes nuts. He does the fucking Fosbury flop, the crowd goes nuts. I mean, he's out there just jumping around, and there's Suji, Suji, Suji. I mean, the crowd is going nuts for Yotsuji more in this match than they're going nuts for you know Sonata. Really, nothing for Sonata. But you know, I thought Sonata was okay in this match, but I thought Suji really impressed me, and it was I, I I've seen some people really really high in this match. I don't think it was that good of a match, but I think it was a good showcase to tell me, okay, Yota Suji is a guy. You're going to be able to push this guy. I don't know if he's a top, top tier world champion level guy at this point just yet, but there's something there and he definitely carries himself like a champ and he definitely carries himself like he can be a big time star. So I, I was impressed. I, he, he passed with flying colors for me and you know, I, I, probably would have had him win here honestly just to say fuck it let's do it let's let's shock the world but but i do understand why you want to keep sonata as the champion right now uh building him up through you know the rest of the summer but uh yeah i thought suji looked good uh sonata i'm still not quite there the level of matches i think just don't deliver yet for me and the level of of crowd connections just not quite there for me either but uh you know all in all a pretty good main event but uh definitely two thumbs up for yota suji i thought he delivered quite well here no, I think the most impressive thing was that Yota Suji is in the biggest match of his life. He's on, you know, the, um, what'd you say? Dominion is the third, you know, it's behind Wrestle Kingdom. It's probably behind the G1 final. Um, in terms of prestige, probably the third biggest main event that New Japan's going to do all year, unless I'm forgetting something obvious. Um, and he, you know, he went out there and he exuded confidence and he exuded, he, he had a star aura to him. Yeah, an and it the, factor, and the, an aura and an it factor, just from the moment he, he walked in the curtain. And that was like, okay, all right, I I am now more confident. Just the second he walked out and you could just, he owned it. And it was like, all right, all right, this guy, this guy is a thing. This, this guy can be a dude. And the crowd picked up on it and he got over and he performed well and he had that crowd connection. 
to me, that's the most impressive thing because you could have easily come out of this match thinking, man, they misjudged this. This was way too soon. This guy wasn't ready for this spot, maybe in a year or two. But no, I think everybody came out of this thinking, hey, he was ready for this. And I think that they have, at minimum, made another um, uh, uh, upper mid-card guy. You know, he's guy now. You know, you're looking at the G1 and you're thinking, this guy's going to do pretty good in the G1. He's going to be a threat to beat just about anybody in his block. And he's a guy that they can push moving forward. He had, he showed a lot of charisma. He really did. And he showed a really good crowd connection. And the match was pretty good. And it didn't overstay its welcome. And I don't think it should have. I don't know if this is... I still have this cough. I don't know if it's a change in philosophy in New Japan where they're going to try to reel back the match times. But, you know, they've had some 30-minute main events this year. Or if it was just, okay, this is a guy just coming off excursion... The, he he shouldn't take a world champion all the way to the limit, and he should lose in 17 or 18 minutes. I don't know what it was, but it was a breath of fresh air, and I didn't feel cheated by the match time at all, and I thought that they told the story that they needed to tell in the time that they were allotted. Yeah, I agree. Um, in terms of Sonata... It could be I don't a Sonata thing, too. It, it could also be... A, I mean, because we've seen Sonata do the long, long, long matches, and they're boring as oh, fuck, God. so... The worst thing he can do. Yeah, it's, so maybe the idea is, look, like, do we want Sonata going 30? No, we don't. Let's let's keep these things to 15, you know, 16, 17. That range is probably the best for Sonata, and and I would agree. Whoever made... If that's the decision behind it, I agree, because he's way, way better reined in like this than, than he is doing 25 to 30-minute you know, main events. Yeah, I think it was more this guy in kayfabe isn't ready to take a world champion to the limit. I think it was more that because the Sonata match against Hiromu was almost a half hour. Long. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. that was a 28 minute match. So I think that was just the story they were telling. And they just, um, you know, got this guy established. How long was this match? 18 minutes or something? Uh, 17, 17 minutes, one second. 17 minutes. And, and so, you, you, so you, cause yeah, you go to Sakura Genesis, the one where you beat Okada. That was 26. The Haruma one was 27. This one was 17. So yeah. you're, you're probably right. It was probably more of the, you know, it's, it's more the story they're telling. Right. And, and I don't think, but I do think they've reeled it back during the heart of the pandemic where there were no fans or limited fans for a little while. There were no fans like new Japan cup. And then there were limited fan, whatever it's like. And they were doing those five and six match cards. They were doing like 35, 40 minute main events. Yeah, I think they were trying yeah, to, every match on the show was long. Yeah, those that. Yeah, because I think they were trying to get people their money's worth, you know, and 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 I, I do understand that because they were getting shorter cards and those sorts of things. Um, so now we've pulled it back to slightly under a half hour for your main events. Uh, what was the? I'm gonna pull up the Super Junior matches. The Master Wato Teton match was 25 minutes, 24:48. So that seems to be the sweet spot now between 25 and 30. Good. Fine with me. For your big main events. Fine with me. And this one was a little shorter. Yeah, it's fine with me too. And 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 none of those, these matches we're talking about have felt long to me either. You know, a 25-minute match can feel long. Master Watto Teton did not feel long at all. Oh, God, no. I mean, no. it was a great match. It just felt like a breeze. And this one, you know, felt... The thing with Sonata, and I, I really don't want to keep beating him up. I mean, he's got the robe... He's got the new look, which is a, a a better look. It's a world champion look compared to his LIJ look. He's got he's a unit leader, but he's still not showing me that alpha. He's still not showing me 
He's still largely emotionless. These are all the things I was concerned with. It's like they gave him a new coat of paint, but he hasn't really turned a corner. I will say his work is better. He's less slop. He hasn't had a sloppy Sonata match in a long time. I couldn't tell you the last time we, we got a classic sloppy Sonata. Oh, yeah, Sometimes- yeah. It, it feels like we're a little past that, but we're still we still got some we pretty boring. In a while. We still have some pretty boring Sonata matches, though. He's ne- look, he's never going to be a dynamic worker. I think we we've, we have to accept that. Um, But we're not seeing those matches of his that just completely fall apart because it looks like he has two left feet. That we haven't seen in a while. But he just doesn't emote. And I think we just have to accept that this is who he is. He's just stoic. You know, even his moves, the cold skull. Like right, just, right, uh, right. And, and that's okay. I mean, you can do that. That's but, okay, but it may not yeah. be a world champion. Right, That's right. the problem. Like, th- wrestling, it takes all kinds. But I don't know if this guy has the charisma to pull off that kind of persona and be a big-time superstar. This feels like the same conversation we've been having about Sonata forever because now they have given him the ball and nothing has changed except the coat of paint. He looks better, and then you're all excited, and then it's same old Sonata where it's just this guy who doesn't seem like he wants to be there. He doesn't feel like he wants to. Can we evolve in any way whatsoever? Can we Can we do that? I mean, take a look at, okay, I understand he's an all-time great and one of the greatest wrestlers to ever walk the earth. I, I get it, but look at Okada. He does something different every year, and it doesn't even always land. The fucking balloons. The balloon. <laughs> the the balloon run didn't land, but he made it work. He made I'm, it made it work as much as the balloon run was going to work. You had depressed Okada with the balloons. You had Okada, who uh, I'm all injured and my back's fucked up, and I'm gonna I'm gonna beat people with the the money clip. You have Okada now, who's like this angry jumbo Saruta, like fucking who who doesn't respect the the young guys coming up, like. He's always switching it up in some way, right? You even go back further. He's this rich, aloof guy that that was the perfect foil for Naito, who connected with the common person, the working man, the, the person who's been shit on their whole life, the overlooked. Okada's always doing something, making these subtle changes. Chris Jericho, constantly changing things up. When does Sonata evolve? Well, he got a haircut. When does he, sh- he got a haircut, Joe. Well, that's what I mean. It's just a coat of paint. Like, <laughs> right. He's still the same fucking guy. Like, when does he? Right, he's the same guy we've seen from Russell. You know what I mean? Like, we've been having this Sonata conversation for 10 years now at this point. Like, it's not. And you might be saying, oh, well, you're comparing him to it's this is unfair. It's Chris Jericho. It's Okada. These are Hall of Famer. Well, he's a world champion now. And, and he's supposed to be the top star in the company. Well, show me some evolution. Uh, do something different. Take this thing by the throat and show me that you're the top. Not only does he not feel like the alpha in the company, he doesn't feel like the alpha in his group. Like, he, I, I don't feel like there's any separation between him and, like, Taichi other than the presentation. I, 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 I don't feel like there's any – I feel like Taka's the leader of the group, and he's a jobber. Like, why isn't he the clear standout of his own group? I don't know. I have a lot of problems with this. I, I, I don't think this is working, and I, I think – um, I identified this early on by the tepid crowd responses. And look, I understand he has his fans. Everyone in New Japan has their pockets of fans. Okay. But I'm t- this guy should be, as a world champion and the guy who finally overcame Okada, 
turned on LIJ, beats Hiromu. We should start seeing this guy get over like a proper major star and world champion. I'm not seeing it. Yeah, those cr- those crowds need to start it. reacting for this guy, and they're just not. They're, they're just not. He, he's. Can, can I have the crowd want him to win one of these matches? Right, exactly. Can I just have that? Can we start there? Can we start with, this is our world champion. This guy fucking rocks, and I want him to hit that new fucking DDT gimmick on this guy and put him away and leave him like, can we, can we start there? Can this guy have one match where 7,000 people are chanting Sonata, Sonata, and are clearly behind him because he's the fucking top dog in the company. Can I have that one time at a base level instead of matches where they always want the other guy to win? And allegedly this guy's a baby face. I still disagree with that. <laughs> right, with every, every, match he's, every major match he's been in, it's, they're, they're cheering for somebody else. But. I, I still think that they're heel-leaning tweeners, just five guys. That, but whatever. If you're, t- you know, even if that's the case, I mean, fuck. I, you know, I, 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 I'm just not seeing it. You know, I'm just not seeing it. And we're going to go through this G1, and, you know, I don't know what his block is going to look like, but would it, you know, it's like, I'm wondering, and I want to see the block first, but I'm wondering how many nights that G1, he won't even be the most overmatch in his, in his own block, depending who he's in the block with. And that's a problem. I, I feel like that's a problem. But it's going to be a, who knows how many, there's 900 people in the G1. Okay, that's number one. So there's going to be a thousand blocks in this thing. He might be in a block with like five other people and it might be a bunch of jabron. But so I want to see the blocks first, but he might end up in a G1 block where he's completely overshadowed by other people in the block. He's a world champion. So I don't know. I, I, I started this by saying I don't want to pick on Sonata too much. And I think I just buried him beneath the earth. So I didn't really... <laughs> Well, I, I like the match. It was good. Yeah, yeah. No, I just think it was telling how how quickly Yotsuji was able to connect with that crowd and, and and get the crowd on his side and rooting for him and chanting for him and all that sort of stuff and 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 how how hard it is for Sonata to get that same reaction in, in most of his you know main events as well, where he's got to will the crowd, come on, root for me, root for me in a way. And even then, it's still kind of tepid. So I, I don't know. It's it's still a work in progress, but uh, he is still the champion, and and obviously will now be the champion. Uh, through the G1, but uh, let, let's let's quickly go over the rest of the show, which I thought was top to bottom, a very, very good show. I thought Dominion was a hell of a show, uh, uh, top to bottom. Uh, just start at the beginning with uh, Will Ospreay, Lance Archer, right out of the gates, uh, U.S. heavyweight title, number one contendership match. They didn't overstay their welcome again. Eight minutes, in and out. Will Ospreay gets the win. Uh, Will still probably doesn't look 100%. I know Lance Archer's been battling some injuries as well, uh, but I thought they had a hell of a match for just eight minutes uh, here in the opener, and it was pretty definitive, too, where Will just puts you know Archer away and, and, and gets that pinfall and, and, and challenges Omega, and fuck, we got Omega and Will Ospreay at Forbidden Door for the U.S. heavyweight title, and and you pretty much don't have to announce anything else. And they, they announced another match, or they tease another match that's now been official on the show. Honestly, if you gave me Omega and Osprey, I don't give a shit what's on the rest of the show. It's Omega and Osprey, and then they delivered yet another match that we'll talk about here in a bit. But uh, yeah, what do you think of Will and, and and Archer? Pretty quick. No, this match rocks. I, listen, this show was awesome. I had five notebook matches on this show, and not all of them were expected. Okay. And it started with this. These guys have incredible chemistry. Every time they have a singles match, it rocks. And yeah, I don't think Will's all the way back. 
and Archer talked about the torn tricep that he's been dealing with, but they went out there and just beat the shit out of each other. And, you know, they, 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 they it was a, a economy of movement. They, they didn't really overdo anything. They just told a neat, concise story and beat the living shit out of each other for eight minutes. And the right guy won. And um, now I went four stars on this. Same as the main event. Since we already talked about the main event, I went four stars on the main event, four stars on this. And I had three other notebook matches on this show. And uh, I thought they, the, the other three were all better than this match and the main event. So this was a really, really good show. And it started off hot with Osprey Archer. And yeah, we're getting Osprey Okada too at Forbidden Door. And I assume Osprey, Osprey we'll Omega, the- Osprey Omega people yeah osprey omega yeah that's what i meant and you know and i assume we'll get the third one at wrestle kingdom to kind of complete the story but uh who knows and you would think that will would win the next two with kenny winning the first one and you would you know will you would think would win the rematch at wrestle kingdom at minimum so i guess it's not a lock that he would win this one but then what's the motivation to have a third one if omega beats him again so um but I don't know. It's uh, it's going to be great. And then, you know, like you said, Danielson, Okada, you know, that top two. <laughs> just I, who cares? Who cares? Honestly, don't even book other matches. And, just give us those two. Fuck it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, it's you know, like, the rest of that card is going to be loaded because Tony Khan is on a mission because he is still annoyed about last year. And, you you know, we didn't even get the second or third version of that show, you know, with all the injuries and things that had to be changed. And, you know, Brian Danielson is basically being kept in storage because they're deathly afraid he's going to get hurt again. Monet got hurt and she was going to be on the show. And now that's out. So that's something big that he was going to do. So he lost something again this year, but they've got those top two. And look, you know, Will Ospreay will, will he'll fucking crawl through glass to get to that show and wrestle. You don't have to worry about that, whether he's fully healed or not. Danielson's going to make it there because he's barely going to wrestle, um, you know, and Okada, he's always healthy and, um, you know, of course, Omega, but <laughs> there's going <coughs> to, you haven't seen the last of the huge matches announced for that show. I'm not saying there's going to be matches bigger than those two, but, you know, everyone's going to get a big time match and, and uh, Tony Khan is out to, to, to prove something. Uh, then the other next uh, next match here was uh, Lij versus just five guys. Not nothing really. Bushi, Shingo, Naito, Titan uh, versus Duki, Taichi, Taka, Kanemaru. Nothing really big on that one. Uh, move on to uh, IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Title Match. Catch two two. Francesco Akira, TJP defeat the Intergalactic Jet Setters of Kevin Knight and Kushida to win the tag team titles. And the losing streak of Kushida continues here. He had a, a putrid best of the Super Juniors. Now he loses the title here. So I don't know what the hell they're doing with Kushida, but uh, uh, a big uh, moment here for uh, Catch two two. They win the titles, and then we get a big time angle where Clark Connors comes down and he's ready to challenge catch two, two. And they're like, well, you only got one guy. Who's your partner? And then they look around, they look around and, and Clark Connors points to the entrance ramp. And then Dan Maloney, who came with these guys down to the ring, Akira and TJP beats them up and joins the new 
Bullet Club. So Clark Connors, Dan Maloney, new members of the Bullet Club. And then this beatdown just la- they just beat these fucking guys for 10 straight minutes, basically, uh, and swore a lot. And uh, there you go. Dan Maloney, new member of the Bullet Club, Clark Connors, Bullet Club. And then we'll talk about it a little bit later when they all came out for uh, David Finley's match uh, later. But uh, good, good angle here. Good angle. It was a good match. It wasn't as good as the match they had last time. Um, uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. The Kushida thing, I think, could they be setting up his heel turn? I know when he came back, he wanted to go heel and change his whole look and persona and everything, and they haven't done that at all. He's the same old you know, Marty McFly gimmick that he's always been. So maybe this is to set something up because it is curious, the, uh, the way that they've booked him. But, um, yeah, the angle is the story here. Dan Maloney... Uh, turns on these guys and his explanation wasn't that you know it was that he said he didn't really feel like he was a fit with tjp and akira socially and after him and connor's beat each other up he said that basically they went and had a beer and found a common understanding and he just bonds with with uh with with connor's better than he does with the um with the united empire guys and that's why he did what he did and of course his promo version was far more X-rated than the one I just gave. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Very X-rated. I mean, he has really, you know, 75% through the big, through through the Super Juniors, everyone was like, eh, I don't know, maybe this guy will never be back. He not only completely turned it around at the end of the tour. He's great. But now with this angle <laughs> and his promos, he's now delivering exactly what I, how I thought he could deliver in this company. Yeah. He's, he's starting to get over. It's... uh. It's that intensity that I talked about early in the Super Juniors that he wasn't showing because he's finding his footing. He hasn't worked with these guys. He's he's the new guy. He doesn't, you know what I mean? Now that he's showing that intensity, both in the ring and with his promos, people are seeing the Dan Maloney that I that we have been raving about for like three years. So um this is good. And I, I think that him and Connors will probably beat Catch 2-2 for those titles. I don't see any reason why they shouldn't. I so, yeah, Connors is another guy who's really taken this gimmick change for Connors has been nothing but a positive. That Hunter thing, that babyface Hunter thing, just wasn't working. Um, he's he's starting to find his footing in his new gimmick and with the Bullet Club thing. And Bullet Club has really been kind of revived. Oh, I mean, in a big way. Yeah, this is the most I've been interested in Bullet Club in in maybe seven years or something. It's it's the vibes are just different and good, and it's it's they're you know, grimy it's, uh, and dirty, and yeah, there's 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 something about them right now. They're they're a gritty little crew there. Yeah, we'll get to uh, get to the rest of them because they came out there in Finley's match. But yeah, Zack Saber Jr. and Jeff Cobb. This is the New Japan World TV title match. Zack Saber Jr. defeats Jeff Cobb yet again. Uh, this time, obviously, they did the time limit draw before. This time, 8 minutes and 43, 46 seconds, uh, J- uh, Zack Sabre Jr. gets the win uh, over Jeff Cobb. It was really, really good. Um, I like the time. I, eight minutes. That I like that style of match. I like the idea of of, of pushing this this TV title and, and, and making these matches a little more compact and a little shorter. And, and I thought this one was pretty good. It's, I think, over-delivered for me. I, I, I went four flat on this one. I don't know if this was one of your surprise notebook ones or not. That was a good match. Um, I'd probably go closer to three and a half or something like that. But um, that was a really good match. I, you know, it, it, I thought it was the time limit draw was a tad better, similar to the the junior tag title match. I thought they had a better match the first time when Knight and Kushida won the titles. But this was a good match, 
everything on this show was good, and a few of the matches were great. This was a really good show. Uh, yeah, the IWGP Tag Team Titles and New Japan Strong Openweight Tag Team Title Three-Way Tornado Match. That was a lot that I just had to say there. Uh, Bishiman versus House of Torture versus United Empire. Bishiman wins all the titles. IWGP Tag Team Titles and the New Japan Strong Openweight uh, Tag Team Titles. What do you think of Bishiman, House of Torture, and United Empire? I thought this rocked, and I won't hear any different. This was great. I, I love this match. I thought, you know... I was going to hate it and just the presence of evil in Yujiro. But man, this was well-structured. It had a ton of heat and it was very dramatic down the stretch. It was well-worked. Yujiro did not get in the way, which you always have to be afraid of. Thought he was fine. And I was afraid that House of Torture would win. Uh, They did not. So yeah, this the right is the, team the won perfect it. way to use House of Torture. Use them for all the heat segments where it's like, God damn it, Dick Togo's back. God damn it. But then in the end, they eventually lose again. You know what I mean? Like that, that, and they've kind of done that recently with House of Torture. They, they're just kind of these chicken shit assholes that, that fuck around, but they, they're not successful. They're, you know what I mean? It doesn't end up working, but the crowd still loves to hate these guys. And yeah, this is a great, great, especially with Goto and Yoshihashi. You have such an incredible crowd connection and such an incredible babyface connection with the crowd that, yeah, you know, them getting pinfalls, you know, broken up by Dick Togo or whatever. It was just insane fucking heat uh, and it worked out perfectly. But yeah, I, I thought this, this exceeded my expectations too. I, did, I don't think I loved it as much as you did, but I, but I was pretty surprised by how much I enjoyed this and, and Hanari and Okan, I thought were, were, were tremendous as, uh, as well. Okan still remains a guy that I just think that is God. They, they got to have higher hopes for Okan because he's just got so much potential in my mind, but we'll see. Four and a quarter. I went on this. I really, wow. Yeah. You liked it a lot. There you go. Um, IWGP Junior Heavyweight title, Hiromu Takahashi versus Master Wato. Hiromu, uh, Hiromu wins in 19 minutes and 50 seconds. Joe, you've been critical of Master Wato in the past. Is this the time? Did he turn you around? Did he shock you or no? No, I have a problem with his work. I just, he bores me. I don't, I'm not interested in him. Um, and he had another really good match. I mean, I went a four and a quarter on this one. So, um, I, and I'm happy Hiromu won. Very rarely do I root for people in the matches. It, it's, most of the time, I don't really give a shit who wins. Um, there's there's stories that I'd rather see told and things like that. But and there's sometimes where I'm mad at a winner because I think a good story might have gotten screwed up or. But very rarely do I approach a match and I'm like rooting hardcore for someone to win. I wanted Hiromu to win this match so bad. I I, I was I was 11 years old again. I, where I was like on the edge of my seat, hoping Jake the Snake Roberts would DDT Greg Valentine on primetime wrestling and pick up the win so my friends at the bus stop wouldn't make fun of me because Jake Roberts lost because they know I'm a big Jake the Snake Roberts fan. I wanted Hiromu to win this match so fucking bad because I can't stand that little fucking nerd, Master Watto. And <laughs> it really helped me get into the match more when I was invested in who won, you know? And unfortunately, because, you know, now we're adults and we have fucking bills and shit. Like, I don't get invested in matches all that often in that way. Does that make sense? Like, I'm, I don't, I don't find myself invested in tapping my foot, hoping that someone wins or whatever. And this was more hoping someone would lose more than hoping someone would win. And it was really fun to enjoy a match that way because there's only a handful of matches every year or whatever where 
I I'm really rooting for someone to win it from like a fan perspective. And this was one of them because I cannot stand because I find Master Watto so off putting. But Hiromu won. Thank God. Hopefully that's it for this Watto push. Nice little underdog story in the in the Super Junior. I hope this is not setting up something <laughs> hit down the, bricks, the line. Kid. Hit the bricks. <laughs> yeah, go back teaming with fucking Taguchi and, and get off of my fucking title matches and, and I just go away. Um, but yeah, it's another good match. I mean, I, I you know I'm not I'm not gonna sit here just because I don't like the guy and tell you he hasn't had good matches because he has. But um, you know, I don't think it was a great match, but I thought it was a, a really good match. Uh, so two things I skipped over as we were uh, progressing through the card. Forgot to yeah. mention after the tag title match, the War Dogs showed up. The new members of the Bullet Club as well. I meant to, uh, and then I skipped over the Finley one. But yeah, the War Dogs, Gabe Kidd and Alex Coglin showed up, uh, and they are now known as the Bullet Club War Dogs. And they assaulted uh, Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi. So yeah, Bullet Club just assembled in big time here. You got the 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 Maloney and and, and Connors attacking the Junior Champs, and you have the War Dogs here, Gabe Kidd. And uh, Alex Coughlin coming out and attacking Yoshihashi uh, and Hiroki Goto. And then that entire crew shows up uh, for the Never Open Way title match with David Finley, uh, with Coughlin, Connors, Maloney, Gabe Kidd, and Gato. There's the whole new reformed Bullet Club shows up uh, with David Finley against former member uh, El Phantasma. David Finley gets the win, 18 minutes and 51 seconds. I did not love the match, though. I had much, much higher hopes for Phantasma and, and, and Finley. And, and, and it just, I don't know, it just didn't. I don't know. It just didn't land with me. It was kind of boring, maybe a little too long. I don't know what it was, but uh, I had pretty high hopes and I was kind of, you know, hoping that maybe Phantasma was going to do it. But then when you reassemble the whole bowl club and all these guys came out, I was like, all right, Finley's definitely winning this match. And and then he did. And I, I don't know. It just didn't maybe just a little too long. Just didn't land with me. But uh, the new bowl club definitely refreshed and 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 pretty exciting to see those guys because that's a it's a cool unit they got right now. It's a cool collection of guys. Finley's whole Finley's whole thing too is like I want winners. You know, you can't be a loser if you're going to be in the bull. And it would be weird if he had all these new guys out there and then he lost. Right, exactly. You know? Once those all those guys oh, came yeah. together and they came out with him, I was like, oh, there's no way Fantasma wins this match whatsoever. And that's fine. You know what I mean? Like now knowing what the story of the new Bullet Club is, it's like yeah, it, it's totally fine for me if Fantasma doesn't win this at this time. I didn't think the crowd was really into this that much. Either. No, they and really weren't. The other thing is Finley, and I always talk about this. He just cannot get over the top and just just always there's there's no that extra gear is never hit with him i i i love the character work he's doing and it's the most interesting that he's ever been which isn't exactly clear in high bars but it's the most interesting he's ever been but he never seems to hit that next gear and um maybe he never will and then my match of the night, never open weight six man tag team titles, Chaos, Okada, Ishii, and Tanahashi versus Blackpool Combat Club, Claudio, Moxley, and Shota Umino. Uh, this was put in this spot because Claudio had trouble getting to the building. It took him a while to get there, but then he showed up and then him and Moxley and Shota just ran ruckshot over this match. Okada is just a fucking prick. Tomohiro Ishii is Ishii. Tanahashi's getting himself a little bit in shape to get ready for the G1, man. Dude, I love this match. This was fucking chaos. It was crazy. It was nuts. The work was great. There was just hatred. Man, well, what's not to love about this match? Just fucking great. Phenomenal. Yeah, I agree. It was a match of the night. This was great. Um, everything you said, I, I thought, uh, well, I mean, here, here here's something. 
How close were they cutting it with Claudio where <laughs> they only they only swapped it one spot on the card, which really only bought them at best 30 minutes? You know, because the the match went 1950, the previous match, the junior match. Five minutes for entrances, five minutes for post-match. Like, were they really cutting it that close to where that made that big of a difference to get I the don't guy? Know. But that's crazy. That's you know, because that didn't even save them much time. But um what would they have done if he didn't get there? Would they have dared put the Sonata match on first? Or what would they have done? I mean, I, I, I'm curious in what they would have, how they would have handled that. But um, yeah, Moxley was great. Everyone was great. You know, Aminu, your boy. What'd you think of Aminu in this one? Uh, he was good. He was good. Um, I, still, he was the, he was the definitely the least of all these guys. But then again, when you're in the ring with John Moxley, Claudio, Hiroshi Tanahashi, Okada, and Tomori, that's a tough, you know, that's a tough act to follow with the, you know, five fucking phenomenal all time great wrestlers. Yeah, well, but no, he well, was good. He was good. He's definitely when he's there with Moxley, it's a whole different vibe with him. It's a whole different. Vibe. He's still he's still playing pro wrestler a little too much for me. But he's 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 better. He's better. I will say that. I didn't I didn't think Tanahashi was any good. He's just a blubbery mess. He just, oh, he's got abs kind of sorta. Of. He's got the Chris Jericho thing where you got abs on top of your fat. It's all right. He's working it. Yeah, but he's moving around like Oh, I, he he moves know. like he's, terrible. I love he still does the thing where he takes off his robe and goes, ah <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, well, all right, <laughs> he takes it. Off. It's like that. That made sense when the body was like an Adonis, but now it's like, all right, yeah, we, yeah. all right. <laughs> I know we talked about it, but he's he's completely finished. Oh, he's, he's fucked. Done. Yeah, he's fucked. Um, it's over. He's done. There's no coming back from this. He's just, I don't know. I think he's done. Um, he's just not moving well. That's the thing. It's not like he, it's it's his body has finally taken the step backwards where he just, you know. It's like when a normal person, when you realize you're just not getting out of that bed with the same pep that you used to. Oh, yeah, yeah. Your ankles hurt. Your Achilles hurts. It's just like, ah, man, yeah. That's finished. I have to I have to do like a stretching routine before I reach for things that are in a high cabinet. Like that's what he is right now. Like <laughs> yeah. he's just – because if I don't do that, I'm going to pull a muscle. Yeah. Uh, that's what I have to I'm do that when, I, when I get out of nowhere. bed. That's the thing. I'm going to pull a muscle nowhere near that area of my body, but somewhere <laughs> right, in my your body. Glutes, your glutes are going <laughs> to... I'm going to pull something or hurt my back for reaching something. So I have to do like a Richard Simmons calisthenic tech fucking routine before I reach for something high in a cabinet. Or what I'll do is I'll call a kid over and be like, ah, come here, and I'll put them up on the cabinet and be like, grab that for me. You know? <laughs> that, now that's, that's working smarter. That's working yeah. smarter. But... Uh, but yeah, no, I, I do that when I get out of bed. I have to like roll my ankles a little bit. I need to kind of like stretch my toes out right a little out. bit. <laughs> I can't just pop out of bed anymore. That that those days are done. Yeah, those days are over. I gotta. It's gonna be a rough day if you do it that way. Yeah. yeah oh yeah. Out. I gotta I gotta prep my legs, prep my feet, prep the prep the ankles, and then then we're ready to go. But no, this definitely a better shooter. You know, he's definitely there, there's a different vibe of him with you know Moxley. I, I mean, I know he's still not. I mean, look at what fucking Yotsuji did in one minute, right? I think yeah, he did more I, in one minute you. than Schultz I, has done in a year. So it's but like, but I'm right. not down on on Umino like you are. I I think that he's looked good in these last few uh, major shows. Yeah, he's gonna fucking um, sink if you put him in there with by himself with a guy. Get out of here, him or Okado. Okado leaves his ass alive. 
I don't know. I don't stepped know if that's over true. his ass. Stepped over his ass when he beat him too. I like it. Well, I'll tell you what. He's gonna be in there with Yoshi Tatsu. How do you think that's gonna go? That's yeah, a fucking Spider Man meme. Both guys pointing at each other. Yeah. Oh, stop. He's better than Yoshi Tatsu. Come on. <laughs> Is he? And, you, and listen, he gets the featured singles match on all the. Oh, games. yeah. The, or, or, <laughs> the singles match. Yeah, I can't wait for that one. Anyway. Hey, G1, make it, put up or shut up time, G1. I'll either be wrong or I'll be right, and I'm going to fucking tell all you guys that I was right. All right? You'll see. I agree. I guys agree. Got he should step up. And guy's got a great opportunity here. Step it up. Yes, we'll he does. He'll prove, he'll prove me right or me wrong one way or another after this G1. Put up or shut up time. Big boy time coming right now. I do want to see the blocks, though. There is a lot of filler in this G1, and you can be in a, a fucking dickhead block. You can really <laughs> a lot be of Shane Hayes and a lot of Mikey Nichols. Yeah, that's... You know, what if you're in the what if you're in a block with Chase Owens, <laughs> Chase Owens, Mad, Yano. <laughs> Mad, Mad Mikey Nichols, right? The fucking Tongans. <laughs> yeah, they could they could make a hell block if they really wanted to. I mean, you can make an absolutely hellacious block. Hell, let's get into it. You want to do it? G1 season. Yeah, let's you do know, it. I've been thinking about it. I'm hoping I'm actually hoping that they do a super stacked block, even if it means we get a shithead block. I would rather have that. Yeah, I'd rather have a shithead block where I just know that maybe there's one it. match I can watch and then just skip the rest and then just an apps. Because you can make a fucking killer block if you wanted, and then you could easily make a shithead block if you needed to. Which so uh, this would, is the this is the Wu Tang Clan of G One lineup. Yeah, so get ready. I'm gonna take people. a drink. Actually, give me give me one uh, moment here to uh, get this. The <laughs> it's probably gonna be four blocks of eight, right? I mean, that's probably what we're looking at here. So. They could have cut a lot of names out of this thing. I do we need Chase Owens in the G one? No, we don't need the Tongans either. Do we need the, any of these Tongans no, in the G one? No. I am so Tongaloa when they did that. I was like, no, what? No, yeah, why? Nobody needs Tongaloa in this thing. I am the conductor of the WWE please sign the Tongans train. I thought Just, they were going to. Is this his hiring freeze? Who did this? Come on. Get these guys. Sign all three of them and get them out of my hair. You could you could do, do you could do please. another 2 years of bloodline stories with these guys. It'd be perfect. Sign them, please. Right? Come on. Anyway. You you could do Samoa versus Tonga? Perfect. Right? Yeah. Um the Battle of the Pacific Islands. Tamatanga can make faces. Yeah. I know he can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of filler. I mean, a lot of names. You, you don't need. Do we need every member of the United Empire? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, is Aaron Hadari really necessary here? Do we really need Aaron Hadari? But uh, I, I did like when <laughs> they did the, you know, the whole announcement midway through because Gino Gino was on uh, Gino Gambino was on a uh, uh, commentary for this show and he's great and and I love him and so they do the whole you know line of Tonga Loa you know what I mean? like Taichi yeah. <laughs> like Kaitoki I'm here the guy goes the, you know the great Oka <laughs> and then they end and then it's over and Gino goes guys can you believe it Mikey Nichols and I'm like I just, yeah I love it. it he's like I Very can't believe cheeky. it you guys and Kevin Kelly's like I know and he's like Mikey Nichols <laughs> He's like, oh no, that's not who I thought you. Were. And it was good. Then he, he brought it up every every time they talked about the G one. You know, Kevin Kelly was like, "There's a unbelievable names in the G one." He's like, "I know, Bucky Nichols is there." <laughs> it's like that's, that's so that's, good. 
That's called ribbon on the square. I love it. It's so good. Yeah. Scaring the guy. It ends with the G1 climax. The crowd goes, yeah. Then there's silence. And he goes, guys, can you believe it? Mikey Nichols. It's so good. I loved it. But on my, uh, (laughs) on my, uh, on my stream, it kept freezing. And at one point during the Zack Sabre Jr. Entrance with, with the TMDK video that was playing, it froze on the part that just said mad before it says Mikey Nichols. So I had my screen frozen on mad with the orange <laughs> background. So I was, uh, it was a big Mikey Nichols uh, night for me when I was uh, attempting to watch the show. <laughs> a lot of mad Mikey Nichols. So, All right. I got water. I'm ready. I, I'll handle this. So, I, you're going to cough like a hundred times. Not going to cough. Okay. The new people, the debuts, which is what people tend to care about. We've got the aforementioned Shota Aminu, Hikuleo, who I'm out on. I I, I don't I don't care about Hikuleo. Uh, Eddie Kingston. You know when they announced Eddie Kingston, I thought, all right, that's a good first AEW guy. I wonder who else they have in store. That's it. Rich, there was no one else. In <laughs> that store. was it. That <laughs> just was, Eddie Kingston. It was just Eddie Kingston, which is fine. I mean, I I don't. I, I thought I, he was I, hurt. Is he not hurt anymore? Well, I guess he'll be healthy by then. Is okay. The idea. But. I, I, don't know, I, don't I don't know if I come him. back. Well, I know I like Eddie Kingston, but I don't know if I'm hurt. I come back to a G1 climax. You know what I mean? Well, he's a nutcase. He doesn't care. Okay. But the the thing is, I like I, I I'm excited about him being in the G1, and I I I, I want to see him in this thing. And I think he's 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 gonna have one great match for sure, and he's gonna have one match that is gonna be god fucking awful for sure, and then the other like five matches or whatever. Who the hell knows what you're gonna get? But you're going to get a great one, and you're going to get one that's like fucking um, uh, who's the other good brother guy? Uh, it's and Luke Gallows' bad. <laughs> Luke Gallows, you're going to get one yeah. that's Luke Gallows' bad, okay? Um, this is going to be a sloppy mess because he's not going to be on the same page with someone. But he really would have been better if it was like the other AEW guy that's in the G1. You know what I mean? Like that would have been better, but he is the AEW guy in the G1. Anyway, uh, Ren Narita. Uh, he's got something to prove because uh, the clock's ticking on this. Yeah, I agree. Too. Yep. yep. Uh, uh, Gabe Kidd, and Alex Coglin. You know, they're all they're both going to go like two and six or whatever, and um, yeah, maybe they'll push one. Who knows? Shane Haste and Mikey Nichols. Hey, you know Shane Haste. Depending on the block he's in. Nah, he, Haste can matches. go. Haste can go. I have no use for Mad Mikey. <laughs> Mad uh, Mikey, not so much. Yeah, that's if I'm making a shithead block. Mad Mikey Nichols is in my shit block for sure. But, you know, they're both going to be in the opener every night, no matter what block they're in. Uh, Yota Suji, you know, obviously they just established him. It's going to be interesting to see how he's booked. And then the one I popped off my couch for, Keito Kiyomiya. You, you and Osaka Joe Hall, man. They went nuts for it. As well they should. And he's going to be in Okada's block. We know that. So the question is, who else will be in the block with them? You know, and on what night are they going to book the match? If they're... If it's Okada Kiyomiya night one, Okada's losing because you know that's how they book this thing. There's always that big upset, and they've already been, you know, feuding throughout the year or whatever already, and they're gonna beat Okada and set up a match later on on some fucking show, maybe Wrestle Kingdom, maybe something else, and have another singles match. So, you know, that's a huge get for the G1. Um, I don't see Jake Lee's name. 
That I, uh, I missed yet that another, another year, Jake Lee, unfortunately, just on the chopping block. He was, he was the last out. You know what I mean? When you do the uh, NCAA tournament last out, yeah. he was he was definitely the last out. They, they were like, ah, it's between Mad Mikey Nichols and Jake. And I'm sorry, Jake, we're going to go with Mad Mikey Nichols instead. So, yeah, it was uh, Jake Lee and Bad Luck Folly. Yeah, Bad Luck Folly, Tom Lawler, Jake Lee. <laughs> I was like, sorry, guys, we're yeah. going we're, we're going with uh, we're going with Mad Mikey Nichols. But thank you for all. For, for attending this Zoom meeting. but uh. And now we just wait for the blocks. I mean, everybody else, we don't have to go through these names. It's all the guys on the fucking roster. I mean, you really want me to break down Yoshihashi's G1 right now? I'm not doing that. We have plenty of time to do that. I was really hoping uh, we were going to go no Yano this year. and Yeah, me too. We're, trust, we're going to get that. But Yano's the comedy, the, the, the break. I understand. We've been saying that. Care. We've been saying Fuck. that for seven years now. We're past that, though. You got evil already. Evil's going to be in there no matter what. We know evil's going to be in there. There's your break. Yeah. There's yeah. your break don't, match. Don't Yano explain Yeah, me. we've been I, around the I, block, I, motherfucker. We know this thing, I'm the, okay? I'm the, one, I'm the one who told you what Yano's role is. You don't Yano explain me. No. I Yano explain you. Okay, let's get that straight. But like there's I think there's so many other opportunities on it. You look up and down this and if you're evil's going to have to be in this. We know evil's going to be in there. There you go. There's your one dude that you're going to have a match with him and you're going to fuck around the whole time and, and, and jack around. Okay, that's fine. There's enough guys as well that when I saw that Yana was involved, I was like, oh, come on. Like you're going to give me all these guys. There's a bunch of dudes that, you know, are just not going to have. I mean, I, I like Chase Owens, but his matches are going to be a lot of dumb shit, too. Um Tangaloa, you're probably going to get kind of crappy. Hikuleo, you're not going to go out there and bust your ass against Hikuleo. So it's like, there's a bunch of, it's not like a murderer's row like 2013. You know what I mean? It's not like a murderer's row of everybody in this block is incredible. Everybody's going to go out there and fucking kill themselves for 15 minutes, and then you're going to get your Toroyano match that you can chill and rest. Like, you're going to get a lot of rest. No matter what block you're in, there's a bunch of guys that you're probably going to get some pretty decent rest against. Your Mikey Nichols is your evils, your Chase Owens is your Hikuleos, your, you know. So it's like to see Yano in there again, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can't do this again. All right. All right. Fine. Let's go ahead. So, yeah, that, that's a little disappointing. But uh, yeah, it's just, it, it feels a little more bloated than it needs to. But I, you'll really determine it by the blocks. Cause like you said, they could really structure this in a way where, where a few blocks look badass and and you can more easily skip a couple blocks i hope they do that um then as right, listen just, i'm all on board with sacrificing a block just yeah. if it means loading one up like you give me that kiyomiya okada block and if you if i'm just throwing names out if if, if like fucking osprey and and kingston and hiroki goto and are all in that fucking block and the scrubs of the block are like shane haste you know and phantasmo or something or guys that can go I'd rather have that and then have a block full of shit than just everything is even, but then you only have two or three big time matches in each block. Right, right, right. That that would be disappointing. Yeah. So because there's a lot of good wrestlers in this G1, like there's a lot of really good wrestlers, but yeah, I, I, I do fear that you're going to be kind of them together. Right, you know, right. I, fucking, let's do it. A block, make it the A block too. The key is where Ishi goes because Ishi's a guy who's going to lose all the time, so he's going to be a, a scrub in a block. But whatever block he's in where he's the scrub is going to be a really good block because all the, you know, every what match I mean? is going like to rock. Extra, yeah, every match is that's an roll. extra good guy in the block. Right. You see what I'm saying? Right, right, right. So oh, key, I, I forgot to mention Kenta, too. Again, you're going to get another guy that's going to be a night off in, in, in Kenta, yeah. most likely. So it's like, yeah, there's a lot of night off guys in this G1. And that that worries me a little bit. You know, Ishii and Shane Haste are the guys you want in, in, in your block because those yeah. are guys that are going to eat a lot of L's, but they're good. So they get so they're going to be in there with 
So one of the scrubs of the block is someone good rather than Chase Owens or fucking Hikaleo or some shit, you know? So anyway, I hope there's a stacked block. We got, we got more to get to. Let's get, we have plenty of time to talk about G1. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So uh, let's, I'm going to briefly talk about this all together show because I was like, oh yeah, all together is coming up. And this card is pretty not great. It's, it's new Japan, all Japan, Noah, you don't like this. I'm interested in that. I don't, I don't like these just thrown together tag matches. I don't know. There's yeah. Sometimes yes, but I, there's a little too much of the tag match. So I was hoping we get a couple singles matches up and down. I know you're not going to get Okada and, and, and Tadahashi in singles matches or whatever, but there's a little too many multi-man tags here uh, for my liking. It might over deliver, but June 9th, uh, of course, tomorrow. Uh, so by the time most of you are listening to this, it will have already happened and it will either be a great show or whatever. And you can laugh at me and make fun of me for, for being wrong about it or whatever. Uh, we mentioned the only singles match is Yoshi Tatsu versus Shota Umino. Uh, otherwise, you got Tanahashi, Kaito Kiyomiya, Kento Miyahara. That's a nice little trio there uh, versus Okada, Kano and Yuma Aoyagi. So that, that's a that's a fun match. That match rules. I, I do want to watch that one. Yeah, that's a th- fucking rock. Yes, I agree. The rest of the show, I don't know. <laughs> like, do you, do you want me to list every other match on the show, or do you want to kind of pick and choose matches that that stand out for you? Well, I, you know, yeah, Amakusa, Atsuka, Aoyagi, and Hiromu versus Hayata, Master Wato, and Rising Hayato. Um, you know, Amakusa is my guy, and it's clear that Hiromu likes him. He's teaming with him here, and um, you know, I, I think obviously that team will win. And there's, you know. Rising Hayato sitting right there to eat the fall. Uh, just five guys versus good-looking guys. How can you not be pumped up? For oh that? no, no, That's yeah, you got to, you got to be into it. Just five guys yeah. versus good-looking guys. That that was the most obvious booking, and I'm glad they went with it. Uh, Sonata, Taka, and Kanemaru versus Jake Lee, Tadasuke, and uh, and Yohei. So, and look, like a lot of these shows, New Japan is hardly going to lose. I mean, <laughs> no. we all know they have the high <laughs> yeah, They're ground. the power. They're the power broker here. They, you know, so they're going to win this. You got fucking Tadasuke or Yohei sitting right there to take the pin. I, you know, I know Taka's on the other team, but I, Sonata's not losing on no. the show. He's no, no, the no, no, New no, Japan no. World Heavyweight Champion. But I also think it's notable that, you know, he's not working on top, even though he's the world champion. Not to rehash the conversation we just had 20 minutes ago, but uh, uh, Suwama... Yuji Nagata and Yuma Anzai versus Bushi, Shingo, and Naito. This is interesting because, you know, it's like Yuma Anzai, he can't lose right now, right? So Bushi has to eat the fall here. This is one where I think New Japan has to lose, right? I mean, I have to lose this. This Um, one, yeah, this one, Bushi's taking that fall for sure. And that's okay. I think, I mean, I I don't think Yuma Anzai is in a position to lose right now is, is... is the thing any and, and and there he is teaming with Nagata again. Nagata would love to just kidnap that guy and bring him to New Japan. Um, but that's not gonna happen. Uh the Saitos, Dan Tamora, Hikaru Sato, and Ruki Honda <laughs> versus the five United Empire guys, all of them except Osprey. Um <laughs> I guess it's an interesting dynamic I, with the Saitos. Dude, great Okan with the um, Voodoo murders. He might go to those guys, he might defect from New he Japan might, and yeah. join the Voodoo Murders, and I honestly, it'd be fine. With, I'd be fine with it because he's gonna see those guys and be like, "Those are my shit bags. I gotta be with these guys. <laughs> this is where I need to be with these shit bags." So uh, he he might defect, and and again, I, I fully support it. So Suzuki, Despi, and Ren Narita—they're a little group there against Junta Miyawaki, Nao, uh, Naomi Chimera, Fuji, and Takashi Sagara. So uh, that looks like uh, Junta Miyawaki staring at the lights. 
Uh, Hokuto Omori and Satoshi Kojima, because Suji Ishikawa has the flu or some shit, taking on the newly reformed Axis. So uh, Hokuto Omori surely is uh, oh, yeah. taking the fall there. <laughs> Uh, the Yoshitatsu Shota Aminu match, which is another Shota Aminu showcase win, whether Rich likes it or not. That guy's getting rocket packed. We have uh, Zack Sabre Jr. and Kose- Kosei Fujita is always great on these mix shows. And uh, he'll team with Zack Sabre Jr. against Sean Legacy and uh, Zack Sabre Jr. on meth, Chris Ridgeway. <laughs> so that's kind of like. Then we have The Tough. All caps. What a great name. All caps, by the way. Yeah, and I mean it's Masakitami and Yoshiki. Yeah, and how and else they, would you describe those guys than the tough? I, it, perfect. Yeah, they it would works. be called the tough. Yeah, so with Daiki Inaba, and they take on Hiroki Goto, Tomohiro Ishii, and Yoshihashi. So uh, again, New Japan's going to win that one, and then uh, Black Menso Ray. Right, <laughs> get a, get a shower ready for this one. By the way, <laughs> good lord. Yeah, <laughs> you can skip the pre-show. Uh, Rusuke Taguchi and Yo versus Alejandro. Atsushi Katoge, Saiki Yoshioka, and Super Crazy. Actually, I don't mind that, match. No, it's it's grimy. It's, but yeah, It's grimy, but it's good. <clears throat> not bad. That's no point really breaking that down anymore. It's going to be over by the time anyone listening to this watches, uh, listens. because Unless you're listening live, because the show is in a couple of hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that. Dragon Gate has fired SB Kento and Takuma Fujiwara. Opened the voice gate, did a tremendous timeline breakdown of this story on their show this week. So um, uh, I would recommend listening to that. The basic gist of it, they were fired for a behavioral issue. Um, It's somewhat mutual in that they don't really want to be there anymore, but Dragon Gate doesn't want to employ them anymore. They're back in Mexico, the both of them. Um, Another big key is it seems as though AAA Conan has some interest in bringing both of those guys in to AAA, which is interesting because Conan had in the past not liked their work, but now he seems to have flipped his interest. Um, the the chances of them coming to the U.S. Are, are kind of slim because it seems as though one of them has massive visa issues. I forget which one. Uh, Fujiwara. Fujiwara. SP Kento. Because SP Kento was able to do good runs of the American Indies in the last year. But Fujiwara apparently has some issue with his visa. So, yeah, he, he cannot go to the USA, it looks like right And now. they seem to want to be in Mexico anyway. Yes. Yeah. Fujiwara changed his, uh, I, I think it's his Twitter or his Instagram, I forget, uh, to Fujiwara underscore Luchador. Or so he, he's, he's all in on staying there, it seems. And as far as the issue, I mean, we were told what it is. Um, we're not trying to play the we know something you don't know game, but I will say this. It's something that to me is not a big deal. But if we told you what it was, you'd go, oh, OK, we get it. Right. You, you would that's, understand that's why Japan. a Japanese wrestling company that's would Japan. frown on employees being a part of this yeah, or doing this yeah. that they did. So if you're not picking up what we're laying down, ask around and someone will fill you in. It's just, it's something that culturally it's a cultural it issue. makes sense. You wouldn't um, get but any, any wrestler in America wouldn't get fired for this, but you would get fired for this for doing it in a Japanese wrestling. And company. they're certainly not going to get fired in Mexico for this. Oh no, <laughs> no, so, no, they're fired for not, not in doing, Mexico. They're fired for not doing this in Mexico, so. not in America. They might slap you on the wrist in America. Look, these guys are not, the reason we're saying this is these guys are not heinous monsters. Hmm. Okay. Um, but they're, they're t- one of them's 21 and the other one's 23. Yeah. Is a good know, way to look so, at it too. Um, 
And, and like you, know, you said, normally, apparently not super upset about this either. So I like no, I don't know if what they did thing. was an intentional way to get fired or it was eh. mostly, hey, we did it. You guys are fired. Eh, you know what? Fuck you. We don't really care anyway. So Whatever. we'll just stay in Mexico. Be yeah. Japan. I mean, Mexico. Yeah. Um, you know, if it was any other company aside from Dragon Gate or possibly New Japan. Yeah. I'll throw New Japan in there. You'd be like, wow, two great young talents. This is a big hit. And it's a hit. But I don't think it's a big hit because Dragon Gate's so loaded. I mean, when Kokuda won the Open the Dream Gate and he named the new next big six or whatever, he didn't include these guys. And no one, like, I, I don't want to say no one noticed, but it wasn't like a huge deal that he didn't include because they have so many good young wrestlers. That right, like, right, right. You know what I mean? So this is one company that could absorb this kind of loss where they lose two guys under 25 who have star potential because they're so loaded with young guys under 25 who have star potential. You know, I think, I think new Japan would be able to afford the ticket because they're always churning out new talent. Uh, you know, WWE is hard to compare. They have so many people in the, in the PC. Um, but those are the two companies I would say where it's like, you know, normally you'd be like, wow, two potential young stars, but they're so loaded. I, I don't think it's, You'd love to have them. Obviously. Right, right. It's a big story and a big loss, but it's not necessarily like, uh oh, Dragon Gate's fucked because like you said, they just did a promo where they listed the top six guys. Those guys weren't involved in it and it wasn't like an immediate. Oh, wait a minute. What the hell? Why are those? It, they didn't feel like a huge loss in that moment where you're like, well, shit, they got six dudes that they can build around now for the next, you know, five, ten years or whatever. And those two guys weren't listed in there. There's guys that you'd love to add. You'd love to add them to the list. But yeah, they, they're not like an essential. Oh, my God. Dragon Gate's now in the doldrums because these guys are not there. But it's still you don't want to lose SB Kento. You don't want to lose Fujiwara. They both had showed. I mean, SB Kento had showed main event level potential had already been doing man you know what i mean like he had been doing those sort of things and fujiwara was more of the you know you saw what this guy was capable of type of thing where sp kento had already kind of gotten to that level you know what i mean like so that he's a big big loss because he already felt like a made guy and fujiwara felt more like uh, okay this is a guy you can you know build for the future but um yeah no it, it's definitely a uh, uh a big blow but um something that that Drang is a very, very good position to to withstand here, and uh, it'll it'll be fascinating to see where they pop up. You know, if it is AAA, if it is you know elsewhere in in, in Mexico, but it does it does everything kind of does seem like it's going to lean towards them possibly showing up with Conan and in and, and AAA and 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 working that way. But uh, keep an eye on for those guys. But uh, yeah, and maybe the whole story will come out pretty soon. But it, it, listen to the open the voice gate. You'll basically get the entire story from them. The only thing missing is, you know, what they did type of thing. And, and we're not again, we're not trying to withhold information. It's just, you know, it's probably not our place to, to say what it is, but you'll, 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 you can probably figure it out. It's not that hard to figure out. And like I said, the open the voice gate guys give you the exact timeline of, of how things all went down and, and, and also kind of dig into, you know, Dragon Gate and, and how they can, you know, how they'll be able to withstand this and, and some of the history of, of guys leaving the company as well. So they, they did a, a tremendous job on this week's show. So definitely, definitely recommend uh, that they did it for like an hour and 10 minutes or hour and 15 minutes at the beginning of the show. So uh, it's open you know, the voice what? gate. One thing I want to mention about that before we do new interview and wrap up, I, I want to note that on their show, because something bothered me a lot when um, Dave Meltzer fell for the hoax. And a lot of people I saw getting on Mike Spears' case, um, some on the Observer board, some on Twitter, claiming that Mike Spears was trying to make some kind of name for his show or for himself by 
by by by ripping on Dave and and all of this when that's totally that, that was yeah, total bullshit absurd. then. Yeah. And and I just want to point out that on their show this week, Mike and Case give Dave Meltzer full credit for breaking the seal on this story in the Observer both this past week where he noted that they were fired. And also Case gave Dave credit because Dave has actually been on top of this story for weeks because he mentioned it in the Lucha section right, nobody several noticed. weeks ago. <laughs> and nobody noticed. And it got overlooked because a lot of people who follow Pearl will just skip the Lucha section. And if Mike Spears had some you know, weird vendetta against Dave, which he doesn't, Mike was just being critical of Dave for that one specific thing where he got hoaxed. And Dave apologized and admitted he got hoaxed. And trust me when I say that there's no one on earth who understands that situation more than I do. Because I was in the thick of that thing. And I was one of the people that, that they attempted the hoax and it didn't work. Dave fell for it. And Mike was totally in the right to be, <clears throat> to be critical of Dave for falling for it and getting the story wrong. Because Dragon Gate's his beat. And they do it better than anyone. Mike and Case. And, and uh, they may have been trying to warn certain people that this was coming and nobody listened to them. So it was more of a frustration thing, too, of like, we're trying to tell you, <laughs> trying to tell you it's I mean, coming. Yeah. So it's, you know, when I when I got the fake email and it immediately raised red flags, the first person I went to was Mike Spears. Why wouldn't I go to him? OK, so Mike didn't have any kind of weird vendetta against Dave. He's not trying to make a name. Mike's been. Uh, covering Dragon Gate and podcasting Dragon Gate for like 10 years or more before he was even with us. He was covering Dragon Gate and podcasting Dragon Gate. And he was critical of Dave because Dave blew that. And the proof is this week where they gave Dave full credit for breaking this story that they were privy to. They were privy to what was going on. But Dave was the first one to report it. And they said Dave got everything right. And then they added detail to what they've reported. A lot of detail. And it's in the first 20, 30 minutes of that show. If anyone wants to go listen to it and get even more details than we just provided, I'm just giving you the details they gave me. I'm passing along what that show reported. So I just wanted them to point that out because that really annoyed me in real time. You know, the way people were treating Mike specifically for some of the things he tweeted when he was right. Right. And just wanted the story Dave to be right and just wanted the story to be right. And for for just accountability. And, and that's fine. And, and 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 somebody like a Dave Meltzer can can handle that and and probably learn from it and, and be better about it. And yes, we saw it here. And he apologized for it and did learn. And right. And then now he nailed this story. He got it perfectly. So it's like, well, all right. And, and, and these two guys went on the air in the beginning of their show and gave Dave credit when they didn't have to. They didn't have to do that. And they gave him credit on Twitter because well, this is how adults. This is what adults do, and this is how adults this act. How adults and some people don't understand that or don't know what that's like. So yeah, it doesn't have to be just you know tearing people down and, and turf wars. Yeah, it's not always fucking they turf wars. <laughs> it's like Mike Spears has no beef with Dave Meltzer. He had beef with Dave, how Dave Meltzer handled the hoax. That's it. And they went on Twitter and said the report and the observers correct. We'll have more on our show. And then they went on the show and gave Dave credit again, and then gave their details of it, which are going to be better than details you're going to get from anyone, including Dave. But I just want to make note of that on our show, on our platform, and defend those guys, specifically Mike, because I I never I didn't haven't ever talked about it, but it, it really bothered me in real time. And I understand it's Dave. A lot of it was on Dave's board, and, and that's 
he's their guy and but that's such fucking horseshit. Because that was not Mike's MO at all to discredit Dave and say, look at me. You know, that Mike Mike doesn't doesn't need need that. He's secure in what he does. They're the best in the business covering Dragon Gate. And believe me, other Dragon Gate podcasts have come and gone. And more will come and go. And those two guys do it better than anyone. Better than anyone. Yeah, they know more about Dragon Gate and, and cover more about Dragon Gate than anybody else other than Jay. <laughs> There's one other person on Earth. That, that for a podcast John Carroll started years ago. Yep. And now these two guys have taken the torch and have done a great job. And they know the ins and outs better than anyone. But anyway, I just wanted to get that off my chest because that's been bothering me for months. And, you know, they're, they're, Mike and Case's handling of this this week is the proof that all that other shit was utter nonsense at the time. That's all. Open the voice gates, voice wrestling podcast network. You can find that there. However you get your podcast. So we're a little bit over, but that's fine. I'm not going to do an overrun. No hour on this. No, (laughs) trust me. I cannot do an hour on the NWA Crockett cup. 2023 night one night two. They did all well, Rich. I want a detailed review of all thirty-seven uh, matches because you didn't include the pre-show. Matches. I did not include the pre-show matches. You're right. Yeah, because the the pre-show matches were mostly contained uh, in the first round of the Crockett Cup. Most of the first round was done on the yes. pre-show of night one and uh, nine matches on night one, one pre-show. <laughs> nine matches the on the pre-show. Ninety yeah. minutes. Ninety-minute nine-match pre-show. <laughs> I did not, uh, Joe. I did not watch a second of those. There was a grand total of two hours and thirty minutes of pre-show Ugh. between the two nights. I watched every second of all of it, and the pay-per-view. I got to tell you, it wasn't that bad. No, it was okay. It was fine. Was it good? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. It, it. You know what? It fit. It fit the niche that we used to talk about with the NWA, where it was just different. It was just different. It wasn't really good. It wasn't really bad, but gosh darn it, it was different and unique. And it, 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 you know what I mean? Like it didn't, you didn't feel like you were rewatching something that you can watch elsewhere. And you didn't feel like you were watching the same people you can watch elsewhere. And you didn't feel like you were watching terrible wrestling. You just felt like you were watching different wrestling. That's what NWA was for a couple of years. And they've kind of, this is, that's kind of what I got out of this Crockett cup here. Nothing was truly terrible. Nothing was good, but it felt unique and different, and 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 there was a lot of heat. Let me tell you, there was heat all up and down the show for sure, uh, which I guess you know we'll what's touch funny on. Is is Billy says that Tyrus brings the heat is the famous quote, and on night one, Tyrus's match undoubtedly had the least amount of heat. Yeah, in the nobody cared. Show. Yeah, nobody cared about his match. No one cared about his match. It was it was it was crazy how that worked out. And could we get can we protect but, um, this guy anymore? Than what they did. Is. I know. Yeah. Talk about it real quick. Yeah. yeah so so the, the match is tight. Let me, God damn it! I got to scroll through all this to find out where the hell that match was. So many matches. God, where was that match? What number was it? Because it wasn't well, the main event. Okay. Okay. Which there, match I found it. About I found the, one... the, the night. Yeah, okay. okay. I found it. So the Midnight Riders versus the Warriors in the Wasteland, Judas and Max the Impaler. Um, yeah. Oh, I forgot. That was the very problematic match. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, that wasn't the one I was thinking. I was thinking of night two, their, their match there. Uh, night one, the Midnight Riders won, and then Tyrus kiss, kissed Max and said, pretty good kisser. Not sure 
if it's my thing, not sure if I should like that. Anyway, it's like, all right. Yeah. Tyrus, everybody. It's like tugging collars. Yeah, I was like, yo, um, cut the mic. What's he going to say next? But uh, yeah, there you go. So. And then they did the thing in uh, where he like had the injured leg. That was in night two. Night two. Yeah. Night two was the Midnight Rider versus the Immortals, uh, Kratos and, and, and Odinson. And so they did. They built this up where his knee got hurt and his knees just fucked. He can't walk. He yeah. can't move. So it's a good. It's a very convenient way to just have him sit on the outside the entire match and let Chris Adonis yeah. basically wrestle by himself. Which hey, you know what? Ended up being a pretty fun match. But then they fucking won anyway. <laughs> so it didn't like yeah, Chris Adonis just won. Yeah. He, he just beat Kratos and Odinson by himself basically. While Tyrus went ah ah <laughs> with his knee. <laughs> He's bringing the heat, Rich. He's bringing the heat. He's bringing the heat. And then finally, mercifully, they lose in the semifinals because Tyrus just can't walk or move at all. But yeah, they had to protect this guy so fucking much. He needed to be hit by a fucking bulldozer to lose to the eventual Crockett Cut champions. But uh, yeah, he brought the heat, as they say, even though uh, nobody gave a shit about any uh, match that he had at all. So yeah, I thought they were just going to win the whole thing. At that point, I was just rooting for him to win the whole thing. Just, just Chris Adonis by himself, just win the whole tournament. <laughs> um, you know, the other interesting things, they turned the Mortons. The Mortons on night one, they beat Arez and Toxin when Ricky Morton did a belt shot to, I don't, I don't forget, I forget I which guy it was. I think it was Arez, but nobody cares and it doesn't matter. And they turned him heel, which I thought was weird at first, but... Now that I've seen Kerry Morton do some promos and it's send good. out some tweets, I think it's good. I like it. Anybody that's li- ever, anybody that's making fun of this is being dorks because it actually kind of rocks. Because yeah, Kerry Morton's Kerry Morton's good. On uh, night two, they had Bobby Fulton out there, and he's like, "What are you guys doing?" And Kerry's like, "Get out of here, old man!" <laughs> he just shrugs him off, and then he, and then yeah. Bobby Fulton looks at Ricky like, "You're not gonna let him do that to me." And Ricky Morton's like, "Ah, get out of here, old man!" <laughs> it's like so yeah. good. It's so good. It's great. And I, I just yeah, gotta Kerry, say, Joe Galley being like, "Oh, we've never seen Ricky Morton never be like this." That that is York Foundation erasure, and I will not take it. Yes. All right, Richard yeah, Morton false. was not a good man. All right. That's right. So let's not act like um, this has never been done before. But this is good for Kerry Morton's development. I mean, he was a guy who a couple of years ago, I was like, ah, he's never going to be a guy. But he's really been one of the more interesting people in the company. And now he's going to do this heat little heel run. I now see him with some national television potential. I, I see him that way now. So this is good continued development for Kerry Morton to do something a little different. And, um, you know, they did the teal turn and then they lost their next match. But, you know, the, the, that's OK, because the point was just to uh, to establish the heel turn. So I thought that was good. The other triple A team actually made a nice run in the tournament because uh, Mysticis Jr. and Octagon Jr. got all the way to the semifinals before they lost to Blunt Force Trauma, which is the doom redo. They fucking rock. So, I love Blunt Force Trauma so much. Yeah. And then they lost in the finals to Knox and Murdoch. But um, the clowns had a nice run. <laughs> the clowns had a they blew up Tim Storm's bracket, man. He Tim Storm had talked to they they did a lot of bracket talk here on the bracket cuff, which was incredible. Like, you know, yeah. the, the the ring announcer, your, your buddy. What's his name? I always forget his name. Uh, Tim Storm and Joe Galley. No, and, no, no. The uh, ring announcer guy, the guy who sends you all your stuff. 
Oh, the ring announcer. Um, uh, the uh, Kyle Dirt. Not he. Sometimes he goes by Kyle Durden, and sometimes he goes by Kyle Davis. Kyle Davis. And, that's it. Yeah, Kyle. The guy who sends yeah. you your Cracker Cup shirts or whatever. But uh, he, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was just like, oh, brackets have been busted. <laughs> he just kept talking about brackets, and I was like, I, I'm trying to think honestly. I would love to see the person at home who actually made a Crockett Cup bracket, and it's just like, God damn it, the brothers of Funstruction. Fuck, you know, he just gets the red. You know, marker out. He's like, oh man, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I'm wondering how many people actually filled. I had a bracket. cut above making the, making it to the Sweet 16. God damn it! Like, you know what else was funny? He um, he went he was interviewing all the winners. So, Mr. C's Junior and Octagon Junior, they defeat Blake Troop. Yes, Blake Rich, Blake, Blake, Blake Troop, Bulletproof, Blake Troop, and Jax Dane. So he goes in to interview them. Oh, only goes, one problem. Right, I don't know English. <laughs> yeah, one problem. He goes, <laughs> no, he goes. He goes. All right, you guys picked up a big win. What do you think? And Mr. C's Junior is like North Carolina, Crockett Cup, and that's and then and they like, went yeah. woo and they went woo. So <laughs> then they win a match later. The next night they beat uh, the clowns. Yeah. And Davis gets in the ring. He goes, "All right, guys, you're headed to the semifinals. <laughs> what do you think?" And he goes. North Carolina Crockett <laughs> Cup. Yeah. That's the only promo these men had. <laughs> yeah. Like he shouldn't have put them on the spot again. Like I clearly know. they practiced. Okay. We're going to say North Carolina. I think they said Lucha. They went Lucha Libre. <laughs> yeah. We know we're in the Crockett Cup. <laughs> right. Like they were prepared for the first one. You know what I mean? But then he went to them again and they weren't they like just repeated it because <laughs> they didn't have nothing else in the chamber. I felt bad for them. You know? Yeah, a lot but of these post match well, promos you know? were, were pretty rough. Like these poor people because you're putting everybody on the spot to have to like cut a promo. And like a lot of people have no idea what to say. I, I forget who it was, but somebody said, yeah, we're here in beautiful Winston-Salem. <laughs> and I've been to Winston-Salem. Oh, you know who that was? That was that was uh, no, no. It was Baby Doll when she came out with her daughter. Oh, that's right. And she. Listen, she gets on the mic and she goes, you know, I was at the first Crockett Cup and I walked Dusty Rhodes to the ring to challenge Ric Flair for the world heavyweight title. And it feels so good to be back in Greensboro. She got the town wrong. Wow, wow, and right. everybody and, and everyone was kind of like murmuring, <laughs> right? <laughs> because they weren't in Greensboro. They were they were in Winston-Salem. But she got the fucking town wrong, which is one of my favorite things in wrestling. I don't like when heels do it for heat. I don't care about that. But I like when like a baby face gets the town wrong by accident. That's one of my favorite things in wrestling when these people are so road weary that they don't even know where they are. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they, yeah, they yeah. just get the fucking town wrong. So she's like, it's great to be back in Greensboro. And they're all just like, look, you can see the fans looking at each other and groaning like we're not in fucking Greensboro. <laughs> That's what's the sale, Bill. But uh, but yeah, that was uh, that was funny. And then uncomfortably and then, talking uh, about how hot her daughter and her friends are, <laughs> which was weird. For <laughs> she yeah. kept talking about how hot they were, and I'm like, all right, <laughs> we got it. Yeah. She's like, you fans but, are here uh, to watch these beautiful women. They're so beautiful and hot and strong and hot. And it's like, all right, we got it. Go on. Like, <laughs> yes, they're hot. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, yeah, we heard you. They're hot. Um, how many times are you gonna say it? Um, her daughter's not that hot. Being honest, <laughs> not, it's the hour. It's the third hour. I can get away with that, right? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. No, we're we're pat, we're, we're we're four hour, baby. Yeah, yeah you get away with that. Hot women on this show and in that match. I, I don't know. Yeah, Samantha Star probably Star's probably not. Yeah, probably not the one of them. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, uh, I'm sure she would. I'm sure she would think I'm hideous too. 
to be fair. Oh, um, certainly. Right, easy. <laughs> um, other big happenings. EC3. Yeah, we're, we're bouncing Mason. all over the place because you do not want us to go match by match. Trust we're us. not going match. And there we're not were literally like it. 37 matches. I'm not kidding. Like <laughs> right. You're not getting that. So. EC3 beats Silas Mason, defends the national title. So the overman with a big win. But the story here, Silas Mason actually <laughs> kicks. Wait, wait. He's the overman? Why is he the overman? Uh, ask him. He's the overman. Because he's over, man. That's what he says. Yeah, I know. That's what he says. Yeah, he he did the in-ring promo and he goes, I'm the over, man. And the entire crowd went, because you're over, man. And he went, because I'm over. And then he paused for a while. The crowd's like, we already did it. Yeah. Man. (laughs) It's like, all right, cool. (laughs) We barely like you enough to do it once. (laughs) Right, we did it once. We we gave you a nice, easy, because you paused enough. But then you paused two times. You can't pause two times. We're done. Now you're pushing it. Yeah. Yeah. like we're all sorry that MJF does your gimmick better than you. And you have to <laughs> right, we're trying else. to get, we're throwing like, you a bone here, but you're taking it too far, so it's it's over. Yeah, now you're pushing it. But uh, Silas Mason accidentally boots Pollo Del Mar off the apron, and then he uh, steps over her, leaving the the ringside area, and broke her heart. Yeah. So uh, uh, unfortunately, I do have to uh, inform you that David Crockett is officially canceled. He uh, not too oh, into no, what the look. <laughs> You don't hear what Boyle Del Mar came out. He went, Whoa, oh, no. what's wrong with her? <laughs> oh, like, no, dude. They, you could tell Joe Gow was like, Well, that's the love of uh, they had somebody had to like wink, wink, nudge, yeah. nudge. But he thought the gimmick was like, She's an ugly woman, was the gimmick. And it's like, Oh, uh, like the gimmick is she's ugly. And yeah. She's the only one who thinks she's hot. Yeah. Well, you know what? I don't blame David Crockett. I blame them for not preparing David. Yes, exa- exactly. Exactly. And then somebody kind of maybe gave him a little bit of a wink wink nudge nudge or a little elbow because he was fine because then he got it afterwards but initially his initial thought was like woof what's that <laughs> they were like what <laughs> like, I think he says whoa what's that and that like yes. and Joe Galley <laughs> so quickly is like well David yeah. that's uh, three million Simon Mason's love uh, Pollo Del Mar that's the manager <laughs> of you know just trying to give him as much as he can but uh, yeah I, I regret to inform you that David Crockett is uh, is officially canceled uh, you know so. what I'm not canceling him for that <laughs> I think I think that's uh, accidental in nature. <laughs> I can't cancel the man for that. He wasn't prepared properly. You know, I could see where he'd be confused. Let's move on. Um, so, yeah, they're like doing a split. I don't know what went on at the tapings. I know that the next power was just matches from the pay-per-view. So, I don't know. <laughs> well, they had plenty. Um, they had plenty to choose from, so good for them. So Camille had the best match again. Yes, that match rocked. And Natalia Markova fucking sucks. And Camille still had the best match again. She worked. I, you know what? I think Markova's terrible. I'll give her all the credit in the world here. She busted her. She got killed in this match because Camille was throwing her around and Markova was taking big bumps, bumps that she doesn't need to take bumps that she doesn't probably. I mean, you know what I mean? Like at this point in, in Natalia Markova's career, she doesn't have to be taking the bumps that she was taking, but she was out there to have a good match and Camille did it again. Never gets the credit. Nobody ever gives any credit to Camille. Everybody wow. trips over themselves to, to credit every woman's wrestler in the world without ever giving Camille any credit because they don't watch the NWA. They don't like her for whatever reason, whatever. But anybody who they're watching it, they're just not watching it. She's good. And anybody who who has like a women's wrestling list or or any sort of like, oh, here's the best women's wrestlers in the world and they don't include Camille. That's a bad list because she's fucking great. 
I didn't think she could deliver with this opponent. And how many times have we said that? She had that great match with, uh, well, maybe Great's pushing it, but she had that really good match against uh, uh, the, the the beautiful person who's not Velvet Sky from the beautiful uh, Angelina the Love. One. Angelina Love. With Angelina Love, she had a she had a really good match yes, with Angelina, Angelina Love. Love. Nobody has ever had a good match with Angelina Love in the last fifteen no. years, and she did. And Natalia Markova is not exactly fucking Medusa Michelli. I can promise you that. <laughs> Definitely not Medusa Michelli. No. Okay. So, you know, and, and now she goes out there and has a really good match with her. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, easily the best match, easily the best match, easily, easily. Yeah, I agree. Far and away the best match. I, I, I agree. I don't think anything else was particularly close. I mean, oh, and then they did the thing. All right. Well, I guess we should bring this up and then we'll finally just end the show. Um, the main event of night one. Okay. So <laughs> Flip Gordon. <laughs> So listen, Flip Gordon and Fodder, they win their first round match on the pre-show, okay? So they're taking on La Rebellion, who are the tag team champs in the main event of night one in the second round. We're told that Flip Gordon is hurt and can't compete. Then we're told that, no, actually, Flip Gordon's healthy. Fodder is hurt. Right, it's Fodder, in fact, that's hurt. So there's all kinds of confusion. No one knows what the fuck is going on, Okay. So La, La Rebellion goes out there, and they're doing the heel thing where they're like, ah, that's right. They're scared to face us, and they're faking an injury, and we're just going to referee count to 10 so we can move on to the next round. So we all oh, know no, they No, Joe, they weren't moving on to the next round. They said, we're going to find ourselves a couple of goth girls and get the fuck out of here. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what they said. Yeah. They said, yeah. we're going to find a couple of goth girls and go hit the town. So count yeah. us out. <laughs> Count them out. We're moving on. And also, we're going to fuck, basically, is what yes, they went out there yes. and said. Okay? They said they're going to go to a goth club and pick up some goth girls and fuck. <laughs> so, of course, Kyle Davis is like, well, I can't just move on. I've got to, you know. So, Flip Gordon comes out by himself without fodder and without Angelina Love. The problem here, Rich, is nobody gives a fuck about Flip Gordon. <laughs> no, or fodder. Okay? Not one person in that building gave a fuck about Flip Gordon wrestling by himself. So they're having this match. It's designed for Flip Gordon to be like this underdog, but no, no one cares. cares. Nobody cares. This is the main event. They've by the been way. there for nine hours. There's been 37 matches. They want to go home. Okay. And then on top of all of that, La Rebellion, the tag team champions, they can't beat this man two on one. So they need help. Who did they get help from? Vampiro comes out and helps them defeat Flip Gordon three on one. Vampiro. Well, you, you are missing, though, that Fodder did come out to the quietest reaction you've ever heard for like a guy comes out from the back while hurt. Because no one knows who Fodder yeah, is. Yes. So they're, like, they're like, oh, that's Fodder. Is that Fodder? He's here. They're like the crowd, nobody, no, not one person in the crowd reacted in any way so he threw a, f a couple of kendo stick shots and then they tackled him and then it was done and then like you're saying then still flip gordon was taking these guys to the absolute limit so then fucking vampiro shows up and now la rebellion can get the victory vampiro who no one should book to step in a wrestling ring after what we saw at triple mania last month i mean what the fuck are we doing <laughs> If you feel bad for the guy and need him to get it and want to pay him, give him something else to do. Don't let him in a ring. 
So anyway, we got the Vampiro finish. And I guess the three of them went out and got some goth girls and fucked. I don't know. I mean, if you're hanging out with Vampiro, you're probably going to pick up some goth girls and fuck. Yeah, you're probably right? fucking. Like yeah, yeah, for sure. That's what's going to happen by the end of the night. So Beastia666 and Mecha Wolf more than likely accomplished that. And uh, the flipping psychos, Flip Gordon and Potter, were eliminated. <laughs> were eliminated, so, yeah. I think Angelina Love is now uh, uh, romantically involved with Fodder. Yes, I believe, I believe a that's couple. a shoot. I believe that's a shoot couple. And it's yeah. public. We're not out of school here. No, that's no, 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 no. That's a public. She's got a type, man, because he kind of looks like Davy Richards. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's a good place to end this. That is a, certainly a good place to end it. I will. I, one more thing. Blunt Force Trauma rocks. They're the best. They they made it all the way to the finals. Yeah, I was yeah. hoping they won. They got you know they got Aaron Stevens now as their manager, and he's just like. It should be Teddy Long. It should be Teddy Long, but he he works too as like, you know, just the you know, he comes out with the suit or whatever, and he's like, "Here's my boys," and then they come out and they got like the da 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 music, and it's just like <laughs> carnage and drama, and they cut a promo, and it's like, "What are you gonna do, Carnage?" And he's like, "Kill him," and they're like, "What are you gonna do, Damage?" He's like, "Destroy him," and I'm like, "Yes, yeah, this rules yeah. so much," and they made it all the way to the finals, and damn it. They didn't, they didn't win. Knox and Murdoch won. So. You know, this really wasn't that terrible. No, it really wasn't. It's it, just, we're la- all the laughing aside, it was fine. It's average ass boring wrestling. <laughs> right. That's a little it funny. It's like, it's fun bad. You know what I mean? It's it's fun. It's not bad bad. It's fun bad, but it's not even f- bad. It's, it's like fun fine. Bad. It's just boring. It's fun fine. It's just average <laughs> it's boring just, wrestling. It just never ends. It's always going. It just it is always happening. Ends. <laughs> Why are the so long? Why are the shows so long? Yeah, it's like why are the shows so long? Why are so many people booked, Billy? Like, why does tournament need thirty teams? Why <laughs> is it so long? That's the problem. If these NWA shows were a neat and tidy two and a half hours with seven matches, I might even look forward to them. But now it's like, oh my god, I have two four-hour shows to watch this weekend of boring matches. And actually, it wasn't even all that poorly booked. I think I thought the booking was better than it's been. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Aside from the Vampiro thing, because a lot of the other stuff on the show made sense and was interesting. Right. They did resets for some of the characters. You got the Morton turn, like you said. You got Thrill Billy. You know, turning on Silas and Poyo. Yeah, it turned on Poyo. Then, then yeah, unfortunately, Vampiro is in the house too. Um, Yeah. EC3 still your national heavyweight champion. Uh, he on night he's two over man. He's yeah, because he's over man. And then he uh, he challenged Tom Latimer uh, for a for a match on the show. So. Oh great! I can't wait for that. That's yeah. gonna be. Oh, the masked man versus Scion. Oh. So the Swink, of course, figured out who the masked man. Was. Oh, did he? Yes, he did. Who was the masked man? It. It is. Are you uh, ruining Christmas or no? No, no. He. Well, yes, we are, but. Based on a tattoo, he discovered who it was. It is Victor of the Ascension. Oh, God. You know, because Con, Con, Conor is, Conor is, is already, yeah, he's, oh, my God. So the mystery uh, masked man who took on Scion and defeated him is Victor, is Victor of the Ascension. Did we Victor. need Victor? Well, Billy did. Oh. Uh, Billy at Billy needed Victor. So we have unmasked the masked man. Well, well, listen, not us. The shoot trash here is the swink. Yeah, is the shoot trash. Victor, the the resident chat corrector, the swink. He did a nice job and he did the detective work. 
and the masked man who defeated Scion is Victor of the Ascension. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. NWA. Hey, if we don't cover it, again, nobody else will. Where, where else are you going to get 40 minutes on a Crockett Cup? The answer is nowhere. The answer is nowhere except for the flagship podcast. So that is it for us. Again, flagshippatreon.com uh, for all of our bonus audio uh, and bonus content. $5 tier or $10 tier. If you just haven't heard enough of us and you want more, that is the place to do it. Voicesofwrestling.com for columns, previews, reviews, and also the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. We mentioned Open the Voice Gate, but plenty of other great podcasts on the Voice of Wrestling Podcast Network as well. So make sure you subscribe uh, to individual show feeds or the entire feed if you want all the podcasts on the Voice Wrestling Podcast Network. You can get them all there. Uh, That is Joe. I am Rich. We will talk to you next time on the Flagship Podcast. Take care. Hello there, everybody. It's me, Gary Kidney, the co-host of You've Got to Be Kidding Me on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. And I am Liam Jones, my full name, and I am also a part of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network as a co-host for You've Got to Be Kidding Me. We are a TNA history podcast that covers TNA one month at a time. We cover all the drama, all the matches, all the Vince Russo nonsense you could ever want in your life. Have you you heard of TNA? I bet you have. But would it be funnier if two people made jokes over it the whole time? Probably. So if that sounds like fun to you, check it out on this very Voices of Wrestling podcasting network and Liam will do bits and whatnot.